everyone. Damien O'Connell here with the Warfighting Society. Some admin notes. If you haven't already, please check out the Ghost and General Smith series, which you can find in podcast form wherever you stream this podcast or in print on the maneuvers.org. One of the authors of that series, Major Matt Tweedy, has also written an essay, Reflection on Failure, which has been making the rounds and received support from a former professor of the Marine Corps School of Advanced Warfighting, among other people. Last but not least, we've got a review of a book on Operation Albion, the German seizure of the Baltic Islands in World War I. I wrote it back in 2008, which, yes, was some time ago, but I think it's still relevant. That is also available on our website, themaneuvers.org. With that out of the way, let's get to episode four, season three of Controversy and Clarity. In this episode, I talk with my friend and colleague, U.S. Marine gunner, Ryan Gilchrist. I first started working with Ryan when he joined the staff of the Infantry Spawning Leaders course at the School of Infantry West. Our paths have crossed many times since then, and for as much interaction as we've had, I didn't know all that much about his experiences in the Marine Corps or his deployments. So this conversation was equal parts revealing, insightful, and fun. Here's Ryan's bio. Ryan completed recruit training in 2004 at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island, and graduated as a private first class. He then attended the School of Infantry East, where he earned the military occupational specialty of 0311, Infantry Rifleman. He was next assigned to F Company, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, 2-2 for short. In 2005, Ryan was promoted to Lance Corporal and deployed with 2-2 to Al Karma, Iraq, in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He returned home from this tour in February 2006 and was appointed to the billet of team leader. In July 2006, Ryan was attached to Battalion Landing Team 22, 26 Marine Expeditionary Unit, 26 MU for short, as a squad leader. He was promoted to Corporal in September 2006. The 26 MU then deployed in January 2007 and trained multinational forces in Kenya and Qatar. Ryan was promoted to Sergeant in December 2007. In January 2008, Sergeant Gilchrist reported to Drill Instructor School at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island. After graduating, Ryan went on to graduate six recruit platoons. He was the senior drill instructor for two of those. In January 2011, Ryan reported to the Infantry Squad Leaders course, where he graduated with a leadership award. In May 2011, he reported to I Company 3rd Battalion 7th Marines, or 3-7, as a squad leader. In October 2011, he deployed to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. In April 2012, Ryan was combat meritoriously promoted to staff sergeant. He then became a platoon sergeant in Company I-37. In September 2014, he deployed again to Afghanistan. Upon returning home, he received orders to combat instructor school at the School of Infantry West at Camp Pendleton, California. After graduating, he began teaching at the Infantry Small Leaders course, where he completed nine courses, four as the chief instructor. Ryan was promoted to gunnery sergeant in August 2017. Ryan next served as the operations chief for Weapons Company 3rd Battalion 1st Marines from October 2018 to May 2019. During this time, he deployed with the battalion as part of the 13th MU. In June 2019, Ryan reported to Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia, where he held the billet of tactics chief. In 2020, he became a chief warrant officer too and attended the warrant officer basic course and infantry weapons officer course at the basic school. And upon graduating, he became a Marine gunner. Gunner Gilchrist is currently assigned to Weapons Field Training Battalion, Field Training Company, Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Paris Island. And now, my conversation with Gunner Gilchrist. So Ryan, great to have you on the show. Finally, I know we've talked about this for a while. So yeah, man, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. 
Oh, Damien, I, I appreciate you having me. Having an opportunity to be able to talk with you is always, always a pleasure. Thank you, man. So we'll get right into it. You've spent a good amount of your career at Paris Island, starting with recruit training. How does your boot camp experience compare to what recruits at Paris Island experience now? Well, I'll tell you, Damien, I don't think it's actually changed as much as you would think since 2004 until now, until until recently. What I mean by that is I was down here in 04 as a recruit, back down here in 2008 as a hat, and then now back down here as, as a gunner down here on the range. And the, the process of what we've done hadn't made any huge changes until recently. And I think a lot of the ones that haven't, and I'm looking at the question, I'm sure we'll get into these as we go down, but... I think the biggest forcing function of that has been, you know, General Berger's message with the 2030 and the force design, uh, which with that came down, we actually took on additional hours, academic hours from MCT and ITB, giving us more stuff to be able to teach down here. And then with that happening, it gave us the ability to really look at some of the other stuff that we've been teaching and how we've been doing it and modifying it. So I'd say over the last, probably since January, we've actually made probably more changes at MCRD Paris Island than we have probably in the previous 16 years. Wow. Yeah, we definitely, we definitely uh, are going to get into that. You graduated recruit training as a PFC. You're now a Marine gunner. So knowing what you know now, what would Gunner Gilcrest say to PFC Gilcrest? So for instance, what, if anything, would you tell him to do to prepare differently for you know, a long career in the Marine Corps? I think off the jump, I would have probably told myself to read more. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that like, as a, you know, a hillbilly from the South didn't spend a whole lot of time in the books, joined the Marine Corps, just wanted to be an infantryman. Yeah. I think that's kind of all I ever focused on uh, for the first few years. And then after, you know, being around for a little while and, and actually starting to understand like what it is to be a professional in this organization you know I've, I've been in six seven years where i started like going through books and leadership books and military history books to like grow my file folders if you will in my brain to be able to do that i, I wish i would have started earlier talking to a lot of some other guys that already had those habits kind of built in it was a lot easier for them kind of coming up if i was running to myself right now i'd be like start reading like right now yeah start yeah. reading it's not not acceptable to not know our history i know how we fight and how other people fight so we can be more efficient yeah. What about the physical aspect of things, right? You've been a career long infantryman that is hard on the body. You've done several combat deployments. What would you say to that, you know, younger version of yourself who hasn't deployed to Iraq yet, hasn't been to Afghanistan on, on the you know physical front and preparing for that physically? I don't know if there'd be a whole lot to the physical aspect of it. I was pretty fortunate when I first checked into the fleet with a very strong squad leader and, and platoon sergeant that were, were all about making sure we were physically prepared. As for long-term wear and tear on the body, I might try to turn some of my um, behaviors outside of work. Right. Made my body a little bit better down the road. But no, I, I think from the physical aspect of it, it wasn't it wasn't that hard to transition into coming out of boot camp and, and yeah. ITP and into the fleet. I, I had pretty good leadership. Yeah. Pretty blessed with it. Ryan, I'd like to talk about your experience at the School of Infantry East. So you went through Infantry Training Battalion in 2005, and you graduated as a 0311 rifleman. Could you talk about what the school was like then, You know what, what the focus of the curriculum was? teaching methods. And I've got some follow-up questions, but if you just start there. So I will, I will say back in 2004, I don't, 
2004 into five. It wasn't quite what it is now. Yeah. It was a lot of the instructors there were short-termers, yeah. uh, select Marines that were in the process of getting out. So I don't think it was, it wasn't near as professional, if you will, as what I think that we have now. And not not to talk talk down on that by any means, but it just wasn't the same drive as kind of what you got, especially when, you know, like when you came out to SOI and we first met, when everybody was still at SDA, they were screened to go out there. A lot of the instructors were like, just got back off two or three combat deployments. They were looking for a break. So they like cared about passing on the knowledge, but that was, that was it. That was like, we, we need to make sure you understand how this gun shoots. We need to make sure you understand how to take it apart and put it back together. Uh, we need to make sure you know how to patrol, but there wasn't a whole lot of like the leadership aspect of it because most of them were, were like disgruntled sergeants with two or three combat deployments that were trying to get a break. However, again, I think I've been very fortunate in my Marine Corps career. Like I had some pretty decent guys that, that showed us a couple extra things, but I think that would be the one of the biggest differences that I see now with like SOI uh, and like what I saw back then, back then when it was more just a, a FAP. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the instructors wanting to pass on their knowledge, and I assume this is, you know, in part their operational experience, you know, maybe talking about Fallujah or Ramadi. And if that were the case, you know, what was that like to maybe hear them talk about these things? Or, or did they share about those experiences at all? I didn't talk too much about like what they saw. You could just tell that they would get really angry, you know, like if you didn't get the gun apart and back together in time, they just always seem kind of disgruntled. Again, back to like the leadership aspect of it. Like they were, they were good at making sure we knew it, but there was never, there was never like the why behind it or, or like the the triggering me to like want to learn more. It was just like, oh man, I need to get this done or I'm, I'm going to get blasted. Let me figure this out so I can get, so I can just get to the fleet, right? Like that's, how do I get to the fleet faster was the goal. Gotcha. And um, that's actually a great segue. So your first unit in the fleet is Fox Company 2-2, second, yes, second Marines. What was the company like when you joined? How would you describe the the atmosphere there, the, the culture? Oh, it was great. Again, some of the, the typical stuff that you get back then, it's like you check in, like you're the boot, but there wasn't as much craziness like games going on, I think, because all my senior Marines had just got back from Iraq. They just had a fairly rough deployment, and they knew we were going right back. Like, mm-hmm. we, were, we were heading to Karma, and it was, it was we got these guys, we got to get them ready. And I think that that was a huge driving factor in the, kind of the way that they dealt with us yeah. uh, as like my, my peer group as we checked in, if you will. So they were very, very hard on us, but not as much like games as you'll hear and see and think. Cause like all they, all they cared about was like, we're getting ready to go. So hard in training, but not, you know, I assume you're not getting hazed and, you know, like you said, playing, playing games. No, we didn't really have any of that going on. Not in my company. saw in a couple of the other companies, but again, I was very, very fortunate in some of my leadership coming in. Yeah. But I, I think I pay most of like who I am to a lot of that leadership you know, I had this guy named Sergeant Hurtado, who's he's actually an MP in the Army now, but just this huge Colombian guy that, like, you would never want to say anything bad to him because you just feel like he would step on you. Right. But at the same time, like, he's the guy that, like, sits you down and makes sure you knew the ins and outs of everything to do with your job. Yeah. So I'm very, very lucky. As you mentioned, the company's quite experienced as far as combat goes, and that is a big motivation, right, to get the new the new joins, the, the new guys up and running. Can you talk about the company's combat experience from the deployment they just came back from? Was that anything you 
had any visibility on or that they talked about? Yeah, I think I think that's kind of most of the company was pretty upset because they were the original one staged to go into Fallujah and then didn't. They were like they thought they were going like they were getting briefed that they were going to be the ones to go clear Fallujah. So they were all pumped up for that. Right. And then they didn't go in, but they were still like on the outskirts and still dealt with a whole bunch of that. They lost a few Marines on the deployment being out there around that area. So I think there was a little bit of a chip on their shoulder of like not being able to be the ones to go in and do that and actually go through and clear the whole city. So I think that might have drove them a little bit as like one, they wanted to make sure that like if the unit was going to get picked, it was going to be theirs. And then two, it was also kind of a rough deployment on them. So they wanted to make sure we were ready. So. Sure. So in 2005, your battalion executes a workup or training program in preparation for deploying to Karma, Iraq. What did that program look like? And in hindsight, you know, how well did it prepare you for that deployment? It was fast. It felt very quickly. I checked in the fleet at the end of January and we're in Iraq by July. It was quick. We spent a lot of time in the field, but everything was was field time, not a whole lot of like classroom time. Everything was like, let's head out to the field on Monday afternoon. We'll come back Friday Friday evening, just about every week. Uh-huh. Was fortunate enough to get to go to the bust course, the basic urban course that they went to mm-hmm. with my team leader, which was really neat, you know. 19-year-old me running around playing paintball on a mountain I thought it was like the coolest thing ever. So we were able to do that. And then we went out to ITX, you know, did a CACS, which was looking at it now, it's very weird. Like we still did some of like the mount stuff when we were out there. Mm-hmm. But it felt like all we did was like range 415 times. Really? And then we get to Iraq and we're in Karma, like everything's buildings. So that that aspect of it was like, could have spent more time on what our mission set ended up being. But everything was still, you know, how do we do this assault on this enemy trench system, which, you know, I've been in 17 years and I never hit an enemy trench system yet. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of that continues. Much of what we're doing today in 29 Palms is against some conventional force and, you know, that they're, they're going to go toe to toe with us in the stand up fight. But we can get to that more later. <laughs> So you deploy with the battalion in July 2005. You're now a Lance Corporal. What was the experience like? I mean, what did you learn? How did, how did this tour, this is your first combat tour and your first tour period. How does this affect your understanding of combat, of warfare? So I was a, a saw gunner for the whole deployment. It was like, keep your head down and push and listen to the squad leader. Very much so. That makes sense. So like, like we had a had a good squad, had a great platoon sergeant, platoon commander that and like there was a lot of trust built there. So for like the Lance Corporal point of view of it, it was make sure that I'm covering the area I need to cover, make sure my saw is pointed the direction it needs to be pointed and pull the trigger when I have to. I will tell you one thing that I thought really shaped me on that, like thinking and reflecting on it, is our company commander at the time was very big on taking care of the people. Like, mm-hmm. like, like that was there was another company. I'm not going to say who it was, was a little bit less opposite, a little bit more. I don't want to say we had the same ROEs, but like our company commander, like forced us to be even almost more restrictive on some of that and made us like go out and like, we would go on giant hubbis patrols and go out and like sit and talk with people and like eat with them. And that was like the mission. And that's kind of how we set it up, which is interesting. Cause when we first got there, it was highly kinetic. I like, couldn't hardly go outside the wire, get lit up a lot. Hmm. 
lot, a lot of gunfights. And our company commander was like, no, like you have to be with the people. And he just kept like forcing us to go out, sit down, eat with them, do stuff like that with them as much as possible. And it got to almost after a couple months to where like they didn't mess with our company. It was very interesting. I'm not going to say that they didn't. We ended up, we lost 18 Marines out of the battalion on that deployment. So it wasn't exactly a smooth one. But because of that, the difference in like the first month, month and a half of being there in the last few months, it wasn't as as often if that made sense yeah other companies that were not as much that way they would like come through our ao and get hit i just patrolled there like two hours ago and then y'all just passing through and y'all got hit and it was almost like they could tell the difference in the way that we dealt with the people and i think that 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 was like a very valuable lesson that i learned so like when i went back to afghanistan as as a squad leader and, and a platoon sergeant later on down the road that was some of the stuff that i always try to hit up with my squad with my platoon like how you deal with the people makes a, a huge huge impact on like more so than i think that we that we think or accept as like a young marine yeah you hear it all the time like hey we got to take care of the populace we got to take yeah, but you're 19 you don't care you know what i mean like you you join the marine corps to go to war but the understanding of like looking back and reflecting on that of how we were forced to do it, how it gave us better results. And in the end, results are really what matters. Right. So later on during my career, that was one of the things that I always tried to enforce. You know, that's so interesting. And you you mentioned the word forced, and this is something that's the company commanders repeatedly putting on you guys. You know, I need you to do this. I need you to work with the people, take care of the people. How does a 19-year-old Lance Corporal make that transition? You know, how does the squad leader who is fighting on the outskirts of Fallujah make that transition? And was there any sort of resistance? Was there any sort of, you know, hey, captain, hey, skipper, why are we, why are we doing this? It ties directly to like the levels of war and understanding where you're at. Yeah. And, and he was very good at explaining that to us. So we went and did a couple raids where we were a little bit closer to like the total war aspect of where we were in the spectrum. And he enforced that and made sure that we understood that and how it affected it. And then as we went to places where like that wasn't necessarily, you know, we're, we're working because I was there during the elections of 2005 and like our goal was to get people out to vote. So like how you have to deal with people is different then than it is when you're going to do a raid on another town, a clear of another city. And he was very good at, at doing that from the Lance Corporal point of view. It was a little bit harder, but. After he went out with us a few times, we got to eat some chai and hummus. It got a little bit easier, but it it it, it was definitely hard because that's not what we signed up for, you know. And that's 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 not at all what it was. And some people accepted it more than others, and that's just just kind of how it went. It's interesting. You experienced that on your first tour, but then that influenced you later on. You know, I'll, I'll be curious to know how did you convince your Marines to make that transition and you did this at two different levels, right? As a squad leader and then as a platoon sergeant. So yeah, I guess, what did that look like? Well, I, I think it goes back to, well, two things. One, you know, the first thing I said is, or we asked me about what I tell myself is to read more, right? And, and understand that. And I think my going through that and experiencing it was, and then reading books like The Village, where it talks about how they do it and how to be able to fight that and being able to pull that stuff out was a lot of what I had to do with mine. Cause it was interesting. You know, I said, we lost 18 Marines in the battalion. None of them were from Fox Company. 
However, we gave out a lot of Purple Hearts, but like we didn't lose any Marines. And as much as we want to go out and do that, like bringing everybody home is still is still you know it's 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 the number one, especially once you do that. So there was a lot of conversations. There was a lot of conversations about that. I compared my company to another company that was a little bit opposite that that took a lot more casualties than we did. Uh, not saying they did anything wrong. They just they followed the ROE to the T. Our company commander made us not just follow the ROEs, but like forced us to sit down and break bread with them. Yeah. Like there was a squad eating with with locals every day uh, in RAO. So like talking about those two comparisons and like comparing the one company to ours and then talking about, you know, the, the book, The Village versus some of the other other incidences out of Vietnam and just like showing those file folders to them, like when it all comes down down to it, number one priorities to bring everybody back mm -hmm. the other stuff we're going to get in it like we're and saying like you're going to get in a gunfight like don't worry it'll come but yeah. let's do the other stuff to make it to where like it's 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 not it's not as bad when it does or or it's the reason we're in it is because they they try to hit another squad because they ain't trying to hit us and and we're able to come around the back and take care of them type type of mentality yeah. so the the process you used with your squad was that similar to what you used with the platoon as a platoon sergeant having them read and discuss the village having conversations about your previous experiences and I, I imagine your squad leader experiences in Afghanistan influenced the way you approached the platoon when you you know go to Afghanistan as a platoon sergeant yeah if you could just talk to that a little bit how, how you how you did this on the platoon level if it were any different so the the platoon level was a little bit different um and i just finished reading uh the book tribal leadership i don't know if you've read that before it's a phenomenal mm -hmm. book um and it talks a lot about finding your your alphas and making them do it because as a staff sergeant you start getting a little bit more removed you're not you're not in there with them every day you're not doing all that so like to think you can control that is asinine but what i did was like pick the ones and and they would even it wasn't even all of my squad leaders like i had one lance corporal that was really really strong like every other marine flocked to him i he he would have been a meritorious corporal and a meritorious sergeant if he wouldn't have got a dui like the guy was phenomenal in the fleet or in the field knowledge range respected me and I spent a lot of time with like him and then I spent a lot of time with, you know, two of my three squad leaders that were really strong and, and, and for, and not enforcing, but like having these conversations with those guys and trying to get them to buy in on it. And they did, they took care of the rest of the platoon. I think that's really what drove it. So a little bit different approach as a squad leader, you know, you're there with them. Like my, I did everything with my squad as a platoon sergeant. It was, it was find the ones that influence and influence them to influence everybody else. Yeah, uh, that makes kinda... sense. I think probably the higher you get in an organization, the less contact you have with the people at the pointy end of the spear. And you really do have to rely on certain people within that system to carry out your intent or to get others to buy into the vision for the unit or whatever it is. And that makes a lot of sense to me. If we could, Ryan, go back and talk a little more about Fox 22, your, your time with them during that first deployment, what sort of operations were you guys running? Was it just a lot of patrolling, talking to the populace? Was it you do a raid one day, 
the next day you're on, you know, PB security, the next day you're, you know, hanging out with the locals and, and getting to know them some. So we've been nine days out, three days back. So nine days out in Karma, in patrol bases, patrolling, or occasionally we'd have like a, a clear set in on part of those three days or not a clear would, yeah, there'd be a clear or cordon knock or something like that would come up about every other nine days out. And then we'd spend three days back at Camp Fallujah to be able to like refit, give us a time to like use the cell phone, actually take a shower. Uh, and then we'd go back out again for, for nine days, except for during the election where we, we ended up staying out for about a month straight, but very much that type of rotation, but it would be go out patrol talk to the people we take people out there with them with us and then before we know it we'd be back on our three days at camp fallujah and they'd be like all right well now we're gonna go hit a raid on this house right here mm-hmm. like, oh, that's the dude that fed, that fed me like three days ago we're like yep now we got to go take his house and we'd go in and we'd roll a couple guys up and come back it was very interesting i, yeah, um, I can imagine interacting with the populace and thinking i've i mean you just gave a pretty kind of chilling example you know this guy just gave us food the other day and now we're going to his house because maybe he's been implicated in working with al-qaeda in iraq or whatever i mean was that a common occurrence you knew the people that you were often rolling up oh yeah i mean not so much on like lance corporal gilcrest because i was usually stuck on security somewhere with the 249 but they'd bring me in and feed me every now and again yeah uh but it would be it would be interesting to like go to a house eat break bread with them and then you know three four days later we get the nod that like that's the house i need you to go in and we'd go in and we'd find all kinds of all kinds of guns and money and all kinds of stuff stashed throughout the house that they were obviously part of part of what was going on it was it was very, very interesting to like break bread with a guy one day and three days later, like you're putting him in handcuffs or putting him in zip ties in the back of a Humvee, taking him back to get questioned. Yeah, that's, that's got to be a strange thing to not just observe, but participate in. Ryan, could you tell us about the, the kind of enemy you were fighting, the sorts of tactics he's using, his techniques? Yeah, a, a lot of hit and run type stuff. I mean, I, I think I was in three drive-bys, uh, just like straight up cars drive by open up and just take off down the road which was kind of interesting but a lot of it was very much that or you know we had we had a v-bid hit one of our buildings pretty pretty hard so they would do they would like try to hit patrol bases if they were going to hit patrol base you would know that there was going to be a patrol base somewhere inside of the ao that was going to get hit with a v-bid so that that happened a few times as well so they'd come up and they'd kind of shoot from afar and try to pull everybody out to the roofs to all of our compounds and then come hit them. I mean, we had one of those gas tanker trucks completely full of 155s hit one of our patrol bases. Luckily, the worst thing that happened is the Marine on the roof broke his hand, a couple perforated eardrums, but it was, I mean, the explosion was so big. I mean, I was 300 meters away and it picked all the dirt up inside the building I was in. Wow. Uh, Pretty gnarly. So a lot of stuff like that. If you could go back to that deployment what, if anything, would you have done differently? If I was in control and could make more decisions on it, I would have started out satellite patrolling from the from the start because mm-hmm. we didn't do a lot of that to begin with. So we were very much like patrolling in a squad together and at the, the beginning. Uh, and that's when a lot we got hit most of the time. So day one, you're going to satellite patrol. I don't need more than four Marines together on the street. The next one could be the next street over. 
or four to six or whatever, but I wouldn't move down one. I wouldn't move down a road without somebody on a road adjacent somewhere. Mm-hmm. Once we started doing that, we, we definitely turned some tables a little bit. I think that'd probably be the, the biggest on the, on the lowest level as a Lance corporal. I'd be like, what would we do? I'd be like, well, we should probably spread out more. Yeah. Uh, it may, it makes more sense. Yeah. After returning from deployment, you become a team leader. Could you describe what's it like to be a team leader? What are some of the challenges you encountered in that billet? Uh, how did you try to overcome them? So I wasn't a team leader for very long. So I, I, I came back and there's always this weird transition time when you first get back to where like all the senior guys are getting out and then you're starting to get all these new guys. So it was kind of interesting to try to like fall into the leadership role, if you will. And I think what most people do is just mimic what they had, right? Like I felt like I just tried to do what my squad leader did as best as I could and my team leader did and kind of run it that way. But I was in an, you're kind of in an interesting situation because a lot of our guys got out. I don't think we had my next deployment. I didn't have a senior, a single senior Marine from my platoon from the previous deployment stick around. So they ended up bumping me up as a squad leader. We had another another one of my peer groups that bumped up as a squad leader. And then we had one guy come in from security forces that was a squad leader. So that aspect of it was kind of, it was like, it was, to be honest with you, it was kind of terrifying. It's like, oh man, you know, I got one deployment under my belt. I had a squad leader that I idolized. And then it was like, how do I, how do I stand up to Hurtado? You know, like that guy was one of the best leaders I've ever had. So I was like, what do you do to mimic that? Oh, it's gotta be a challenge. In your mind, what makes a first-rate team leader? You got to care about mission accomplishment and troop welfare. And I think that that's it's very generic that I think how people say it, but they're they're the same. And you know, I think we've had this conversation. We came out to ISOC a few times. Mm-hmm. It's like we have a tendency to get troop welfare confused mm-hmm. with like giving dudes time off work or like coddling them or whatever and that's the complete opposite of what what that means right like like troop welfare is to make sure you're taking care of them mm-hmm. but you take care of them by hard training you mm-hmm. take care of them by accomplishing the mission so i think that, that would be like talking to team leaders and like as a platoon sergeant talking to my team like you have to care about troop welfare and what i mean by that is you got to care like when your marines aren't lubing the gun up properly or they're not and you got to make them do it again and again and so they can't get it wrong like you have to do that to me is is troop welfare because I'm making sure that they know everything that they can know about what they need to know. So when they get somewhere that it's uncomfortable, they know what they need to do to work out of it, to take care of it. instead of what you tend to see. And I don't want to say 10. That's a, that's a bad word. Uh, but what you see in the weaker team leaders is they think of troop welfare as I got to protect this guy and like not let him not make him work too much or not make him they're soft right like they're soft on them and they think they're taking care of them but in turn all they're doing is hurting them yeah. like my squad leader was so hard on me like I, I, i'll talk talk about him like he was a god in my eyes i mean he pretty much was yeah. but he was hard on me like he didn't let me get away with nothing but he took, always took care of me so it's it's finding that balance and making sure that you're staying on them and doing the right thing you know as far as the intellectual side of warfare at the team leader level would you give any suggestions on books or things that you think team leaders should be studying reading about getting smart on 
think team leaders should be doing TDGs every single day. Every single day, scenario after scenario after scenario. Because I think that that, like, that grows your mind as much as anything. Yeah. A lot of good books. Pick up, pick up and read them. You know, like travel, you'll hear me say travel leadership many times, but I think that that's, that's more like a platoon sergeant squad leader type book yeah. uh, or even company commander type book. Now I'd actually recommended it to a colonel yesterday, but on that level, it's what are you doing on a tactical level to make decisions, to put your Marines in a better place to win the fight. So the more that you can do that and then do it with them, right? Like you, you learn so much about those decisions that you're going to make and that you know that makes me think of my my first afghan deployment as a squad leader we had uh his mind his name just slipped my mind you know when we were out at the uh that how to develop critical thinker seminar a few years back major major tremblay oh pj tremblay yeah, yeah, yeah. he he gave me a scenario as a squad leader i ripped with his company as a squad leader and sang it and he gave us this scenario on something that he had saw when he first got there and how they got ambushed yeah i remember this yeah and and, and he gave because he actually gave it in the class and i was like you gave me that thing like that that saved my life right uh him giving that saved my life and i remember taking that and taking it back to my squad because he just did it with the squad leaders and we did that one and we did probably 30 different times and then we started moving buildings and stuff and just running those scenarios and it was i don't know probably a week and a half in when we got our first like oh shit ambush right. and like i didn't even say anything to my team leaders they just got up and started doing stuff like i, I was like all right i guess i'm useless because like these these corporals last corporals they got it like they just knew what to do yeah. uh and 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 i think that that's very valuable if you're looking at like the team leader point of view to be able to just run scenario after scenario after scenario i'm like what are you going to do in this situation and it was it worked out to our benefit i mean my APL pushed out and dropped a guy in like two minutes. I had a machine gun up oriented and I didn't, I didn't even really say anything. It was just like, they they're, just acting, they're acting on their own initiative. They, as a, you know, as a squad at the team leader level can size up the situation and just do, and you're just there. You're just, you're, you're not shouting at people necessarily to go here and first team up there and, you know, maybe you are, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're it's, just, it's, yeah, overseeing. It's, 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 it's very little because like I already knew what they were going to do. Like I didn't, it was, we had done it so much and we had talked about it so much that like, like I knew where they were going and like they didn't even have to say anything. Like they knew what I was going to tell them to do yeah. before I said anything. And like I knew what they were going to do before I told them. So there was, you know, there's always minor things that you got to say, but it, it, it happened so much more quickly because of it. So back on like the team leader aspect of it, that's what I would do. Like if I could go back right now to like the first time I picked up a team or it would be, it would be that it'd be like, let's, let's look at every place we're going to go that we think we're going to be at and let's run as many scenarios as we can wow. and just look at it. What I hear is MCDP one, one tack three implicit communication. <laughs> Right. You, yes. you guys just know what the other person's going to do and it just kind of flows. Yep. It's really fascinating. In 2006, you and 2-2 joined the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit. You're now a corporal, but you become a squad leader. What was that experience like being a, a corporal squad leader? And you know, what were some of the challenges you encountered? I think one of the hardest things is leading your peers. 
I learned a lot from that because to be able to, and I, and I didn't do it very well. Like I'll be honest with you, it, it it was really hard for me to separate like all these Marines that I just deployed with that were my peers. We came in together, we got rowdy together, we did all this stuff. So like there was a little bit of favoritism that I probably shouldn't have done. Probably some stuff I let them get away with that I shouldn't because they were my they were my peers. Mm-hmm. One thing I wish they kind of would have done was move me. Or, or or moving platoons, I think would have made it easier. And a lot of a lot of companies do that now. But the that would, that would probably been the biggest challenge was like leading my peers. But then again, on the flip side, it was almost a super blessing because like I we just received a bunch of junior Marines before we went out to this deployment. And anytime we had issues with any of them, it was you know I had a good good friend of mine that was my APL, and they just be like I got him, and they, you know I, he would just go fix it. Yeah. Uh, so that that aspect of it was pretty nice of it, huh. uh, but luckily, you know, some of the issues that I I think that I, I I had as being a very young squad leader at the time, it was ended up just being a mu. We spent some time in Kenya, Qatar, stuff like that. So it it would have been I think it would have been uh, a wake up a lot faster if we would have went somewhere a little bit crazier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You deploy with the mu in January two thousand seven. This is your first mu. What's that like? You know, what were your expectations of it, and and how do your actual experiences compare to that? So we thought we were going to Iraq. We were told we were floating straight back to Iraq. That was the plan. And there was a bunch of stuff that happened. I think it was off the coast of Somalia, if I remember correctly. And we ended up just cutting Gator Squares and out in the water off the coast of Somalia. Just you know, we didn't we didn't really do a whole lot. We just so the biggest challenge there was like keeping keeping them engaged. You know, it's it's very hard to take a bunch of alpha males and stick them on a small boat with nothing to do and and keep them occupied. Yeah. So the biggest challenge there was just trying to find ways to keep them engaged, whether it was gun drills or this and ass competitions or McMap type of stuff. But I'd say that's that's probably one of the hardest times I would say to like to like lead Marines is like on a ship when you're pretty sure you're just going to float somewhere for 40 days, you know, 30 days straight, 45 days before you get off the boat again and like keeping them, keeping them engaged. What, you know, to that point, what advice would you give to, you know, team leaders, squad leaders, platoon sergeants who are going on a Mew? Maybe it's their first Mew. They may do something. They may not. I mean, they're certainly going to, there'll probably be bilateral training and things like that and some port calls, but how do you keep, those young marines engaged there there needs to be routine you know looking at it now there's got to be routine there's got to be a schedule uh and it needs to be very deliberate you know we're humans are pretty good at developing habits so as soon as you like start slacking on those it gets a lot harder a lot harder to like get them back but from day one this is what we're doing from this time to this time whether it's classrooms building classes or whatever, getting other people to be able to teach stuff this times or weapons maintenance, but being very deliberate with that, I think would have been hugely beneficial for us uh, going out on the Mew. Could you talk about the Mew? You know, what do you guys do on it? You, you did mention training multinational forces. Uh, happy to talk about that. You know, what were the highlights of the Mew? What would you learn from it? I learned more about patrolling when we were in Kenya in the two weeks we were in Kenya, then I think I still have learned from those, from the Kenyans. I thought it was very interesting to like, 
again, kind of naive at the point for like four nationals and, and the typical American at the time, like we're just way better than everybody at everything. You know, I'd work with Iraqi army guys and they were adequate. But then we got there with the Kenyans and they're like showing us all these different ways that they load ambushes and the different ways that they patrol. And, and, and it was, it was phenomenal and like very eye opening to me, like how much we learned from them. Cause the construct was like, they taught us a class and then we taught them a class and then we went out and did something and then they taught us and then we taught them. And it was very interesting because, you know, we were, most of them spoke or I just about all of them spoke English. So it was very easy to communicate. And they're like, yeah, if you weren't here, right now we would be fighting Somalians like right here, right now. So like, so we do this all the time. Like I loaded an ambush two miles down the road the other day and like got some I'm like, Oh, crazy. They're like, yeah, they just won't come over. Cause they see all the American helicopters. Wow. Uh, they were very proficient, very, very proficient, uh, which was surprising and, and really opened your eyes. Like you can definitely, we can definitely learn some, some things. To that point, did it take again, a sort of transition from, we're the Americans, we're, we're the best in the world, we do this better than anyone, to, oh, wait, we can learn quite a bit from our, our partners here. Yeah, it, could you just talk to that, you know, the, the, the I guess the shift in mindset? It, it was almost like an instant light bulb, I think. Like the first time, you know, a squad leader over there and we're like talking to the other squad leader and he's got his Marine like teaching my squad how to load an ambush and I'm just sitting there sitting with them and they like walk down the street and just disappear in the tree line I was like holy cow like that was just the way that they did it I was like can do that again all right <laughs> do, do it one more time now now let's go try that yeah show me uh, yeah and it was it was it was it was very good I mean it was Again, you know, we just came back from Iraq. We thought we were high and mighty. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd been taking care of bad guys for a little while now. And uh, we thought we knew everything. We're a bunch of arrogant guys. We got over there and these guys were, were very good. Very good. So I, I highly encourage it. Did you, did you take what you learned from them and, and apply these on, you know, later deployments and, and try to teach this stuff to your Marines? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, and a lot of it is very similar in nature anyways, but just the, the eye opening aspect of it. But 100 uh, percent looking at the way that they kind of do those types of things. You also trained with the Army of Qatar. What was that experience like? It, it was quite a bit different. I think a lot of it had to do with the language barrier and, and what we were trying to do as in like how that relationship was going to get built because all of it depends on like how we're trying to build these relationships with these countries so we spent most of the time on that one in the back of tracks so there was a few shoots that we did together with them but it wasn't nearly as embedded as we were with the the kenyans like the kenyans you know the platoon i was with and one of their platoons set in a patrol base together for like three days three or four days and just patrolled out of it together and then, but for there, it wasn't as much that we did a couple of shoots together, we did kind of a, a ceremony and a dinner together, but it wasn't nearly as involved as the Kenyans were. Sure. When you return from that deployment, you go to corporal's course. What was that experience like? You know, what do you remember of the course? Did you find it helpful? If so, how, if not, you know, what, why was that the case? It was, it was something I had to do at the time. Yeah. I, I guess it'd be the best way to put it. Coming from like the infantry, everybody's like, just skip those schools and go to Islet, you know, that counts. 
but it, it wasn't too bad. It was, you know, went with a bunch of my peers that I came in with, but for the actual teaching and the way they did it, I, I don't really remember a whole lot of it. I think it was a lot of it just the Gomez, the stand up, force feed you a PowerPoint and then take a test at the end of the week type thing, a couple of uniforms inspections and some sword manual. Uh, and that was about the extent of it. So after Corporal's course, you get promoted to sergeant, you get selected for and attend drill instructor school. What leads you to becoming a DI or, you know, are you hissed or is this something that you, you volunteer for? And what was your experience like at the school? So I actually didn't, I, I wanted to be a drill instructor, but I didn't want to go yet. So I re-enlisted as a corporal with the intent to do one more deployment and then go down and be the hat because we were supposed to go back to Iraq. And uh, so I submitted my re-enlistment with a DI package. And they told me, they're like, you're a corporal. You'll get promoted sergeant. We'll deploy. You'll ask for orders when you're there and you'll come back. I was like, perfect. I ain't on the career, career plan. That's what he told me. That's, I must be golden. And uh, I still remember like it was yesterday. It's said December 14th. I was walking into the building and I just got promoted to sergeant December the 1st. And my career, a different career planner walked by me, not the one I re-enlisted with. And I was like, your name just came across my desk. You got hit for the Hearst list because used to, it wasn't hissed. It was just for recruiting. Um, and no part of me wanted to be a recruiter. I just didn't didn't see that in my wheelhouse. And I went and talked to my first sergeant and told him. He said, you got hit on the list. There's nothing we can do because there's two options. You can either hope you get disqualified and then maybe you can deploy with us. Or I can call and get you orders right now and we'll just never submit your Hearst package. And I was like, so you're telling me like there's the only way that I end up doing this next deployment is if I get denied for recruiting duty. And there's no way I'm doing that because I was already approved to go to be a hat. He's like, yeah, that's pretty much what I was telling you. Scott, give me orders. I had orders to DI school January 7th. So I was down there like that. Wow. As for DI school. So when I checked in, it was. I think it was a little bit different experience for me than most because I was so junior. I was, you know, hadn't even been in the Marine Corps four years yet. I've been a sergeant for a month, seven days when I checked in. And there's everything from, you know, me as the most junior Marine in the class to a gunny uh, that's got like 16 years in the Marine Corps as a student in there. So I think that I was, I have a unique perspective on it. I thought a lot of the stuff was funny. You know, because I, I just, you know, they come in there and they, they, they try to give you the shock and all kind of like you do with uh, with recruits and like do like the yelling and all that to try to coach and make sure that you're understanding, like, how do you break somebody down? How do you build them back up? How do you make those transitions? But I just thought it was funny to see a gunny yell at another gunny and make him just scream my gunnery sergeant. <laughs> but again, there is, there is definitely purposes behind that to be able to like teach them how to do it. And then after the first, you know, couple of days, it was, it was very much bringing in, kind of talk you through like, here is right and wrong for down here. I'd say that was probably the majority of the course was like, this is what you can do. And this is what'll get you kicked out of the Marine Corps. And then a lot of, a lot of the drill stuff, a lot of the understanding of like, we have to take somebody that's gone through something or that's, that's never been a part of something and like make them want to be a part of this. Or like, like recruiters make them want to be a part of it, but like they just get them here. And then it's like, how do you sell? How do you demand and make it so uncomfortable that they like feel like they're a part of it? You know, they say misery loves company, but like you, you, you break them down and then just start building them back up inside of our ethos. 
so they do a lot of teaching you how to do that. Everything from, you know, how do you give them incentive training, right? Like how do you incentivize them to, you know, how do you do the drill movements to like, what does the crucible look like or what does basic warrior training will look like and, and, and all that type of stuff. They make sure they cover pretty much all of those aspects of it. So you're a DI with first recruit training battalion and you end up graduating six platoons what was it like being a DI and, you know, how did this affect you as, as a leader and going forward? I'll tell you, it's, it was, it was very, very rewarding. Um, it was, I had, um, I, I, and I think, again, and you'll hear me say this a lot. I think I'm one of the luckiest guys when it comes to like leadership in the Marine Corps. I've been very fortunate. I checked in and my first senior when I was a new hat was an infantry guy that was getting ready to go back to the fleet. The stigma on the island was like, if you're new, like you're going to get messed with until you're good. I did not have that. I had a boss that was like, he cared. He wanted to know what was going on in the infantry right now. And he wanted to make sure that I didn't fail. So he would like bring me in the office and teach me and coach me and all this other stuff. But my very first cycles, and I was like, you know what, it's, it's definitely worth it. Uh, I had two recruits that were probably the two biggest recruits in my platoon. One of them was this big old black guy from New York City. And the other one was this big old white boy from Alabama with a big old rebel flag tattoo on his arm. And my boss came up to me and he goes, look, anytime one of those kids messes up, punish them both. And he was like, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to become best friends, which is the goal, or they're going to show their ignorance and we're going to kick them out because we don't need that in the Marine Corps. I was like, all right, good to go. So like the new guy, like that's your job. They scratch, they twitch, they move, they would like you, you make them do it. And I did the entire the entire cycle. One of them, we met them rack mates, and it was like anytime one of them messed up, the other did. And I, you know, I remember the white guy from Alabama with the big rebel flag on him. Be like, "Oh, you're racist, aren't you? I bet you want to fight this guy because he's making you push right now." And he'd be like, "No, sir." Da, da, da. And I'm like, "Yeah, you're just racist because you have that." Graduation or the week of Marine Week, he comes up to me and he's like, "Hey, you know, because by that time they're the Marines the last week." And he's like, "Sergeant, you know, I just want to let you know, I I appreciate it." I was, I'd never met a black person before in my life. I always thought they were all horrible. And now private so-and-so is like my best friend. And I was like, That's, it's worth it, right? Like, like we just, we change that guy's mindset on people and humanity. And like, it's bigger than that. Like you're in the Marine Corps, it's, it's bigger and better than that. So that aspect of it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And I think that like, we do that every single day down here at, at, at Paris Island. It's like you force those types of bonds with those and just, I'm better than, I'm better than my upbringing. Yeah, you know? yeah. that is awesome. So Ryan, as you know, I've discussed changing boot camp dramatically, you know, putting much more emphasis on creating critical thinkers, problem solvers, and, and much less attention on drill. I know this is a controversial stance, uh, maybe even eliminating drill completely you know, what can you tell us your, your thoughts are on that? Well, so I will say as, as probably one of the most hated individuals down here, when it comes to stuff like that, there, there is a purpose in it, right? That there, there is a purpose in, in, in drill and a very good one, right? It does build teamwork. It is part of the like breakdown, forcing people into something. Through a mechanism. It's, it is, it is definitely a mechanism that that'll trigger that of like, I don't care where you came from. I don't care who you are. I don't care which, you know, and could you do it with a million different things? Yeah. Like great college football teams do it with their football teams. Like look at Nick Saban, you know, and how he's forced his team together. We use drill. 
that is one mechanism that we do use. I, I could not agree with you more. We have to go, or we, we are currently, we're already starting to make some of this transition is like, we have to start thinking sooner because that definitely drives home the, do what I say right now, do it, which is part of the breaking down process, which again, I agree with hundred percent, but we got to get to the other part as well. You know, I had this, had the same conversation the other day is like the understanding of the word discipline. Right. The word discipline straight out of doctrine is the instant willingness, obedience to all orders, self-reliance and teamwork. Drill is one of those things that is very good at getting instant obedience to orders, but it leaves out the willingness portion. Well, our doctrine says that we have to have that part and that part's on the leader. And that willingness portion comes with people that can think. Right. Because I can't willingly follow you if I can't think on my own because it's not willing. I am a robot. I just do what I say. Right. So that I'm not I don't have true discipline right like i'm not i'm not on that level so some of the stuff that 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 has been happening and is is currently working through is as as we talk through like the the crucible and some of the changes that have happened with it is is putting them in more situations where they have to start making decisions sooner have to start thinking back sooner so you still have that hey you're no longer what you came from you're now part of our organization right like i like i have to break you down because if not like you're going to bring all your baggage i don't need all your baggage this is the Marine Corps. Your baggage is null and void to me, right? Like this is your new family, own it and be part of this. And that's kind of what that gets at. And then what, when and where that hard transition should happen. I think it's up for debate. Depends on who you talk to. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's definitely always a touchy subject. Sure. You don't want to mess it up. Yeah. Yeah. And I, think, I mean, we had general Alfred on last season and you know, he's, he feels very strongly about, you know, the construct of recruit training. And like you said, the, the mechanism, the, the role and the value of drill, and that if we take those things out, or if we modify them too heavily, the product may not be what we want it to be. And I'm glad that, you know, change is happening. It sounds like for the better at, at Paris Island. And I think more, more conversations need to be had, right? We need to, we need to actually have the conversation. And I, I'd like to see more people writing about this and, and kind of exploring it. But, you know, here's a question for you, Ryan. If you could change one thing, anything about recruit training, what would it be and why? I think it'd be harder, harder line transitions, if, if that makes sense. So both depots right now have the four-phase construct. Yeah. You have first phase, second phase, third phase, and fourth phase. And it's, it's very much lined out already kind of what those are supposed to be. But I think we can dive into that a little bit deeper. And like, when does a drill instructor become a, like now I'm just a, a very firm sergeant or a very firm staff sergeant, right? Like, like there are, there's, again, as a guy that was a drill instructor that thinks that they're all phenomenal, right? Like, but we got to have a time to where we like take that off and start molding them. Now, I don't necessarily know if it's the hat that needs to do that. And I got a, a super hairball way to fix this that I don't think will ever happen, but uh, I'm sure we'll get to it about how it changed the Marine Corps. But I think that, that, that part of that is like making, a, again, back to the making a harder transition to when like, I'm no longer like yelling at you for not moving or like yelling at you for like moving your fingers. Right now you're getting, you're, you're getting incentive training for not making decisions. Hmm. And again, I say making decisions, not necessarily the right one, because, you know, we talk about that right, wrong decisions. There's a million ways to do it, but it's it's the lack of the ability to make a decision 
should have more consequences than almost anything else. Yeah. You know, this brings up a, an interesting point and that's the introduction of the fourth phase and this shift from recruit to Marine, this shift from the drill instructor to firm sergeant or teacher. And, you know, I've heard mixed feedback, mixed reviews on fourth phase. And, you know, some of the complaints, this is going back several years, but some of the complaints centered on, you know, drill instructors kind of letting, letting their hair down too much or, or not maintaining that professional distance maybe, and, and Marines becoming really relaxed around them to the point where they would then go to SOI, whether it's MCT or ITB, and the instructors there sensing or, or, or observing, experiencing much less disciplined new Marines. Any, any thoughts on that? You know, is it, do you think that's a credible thing? If, if, if so, you know, what's, what's the problem there? How do you fix it? Or just, yeah, your general reaction. I, you know, I don't, I don't typically see any of the Marines like after they become like the last time I see them is when they step back off the last leg of the crucible. Uh, so to talk on that's a little tricky. I don't think, I, 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 at least most of the hats that I'm good friends with down here, I don't see them like letting their hair down so much that they act disgusting. Mm-hmm. I think that if we wanted to do that, and, and this has actually been brought up in some conversations recently, is is what is what is fourth phase structurally wise? Because right now, fourth phase is very much like the admin, like let's catch all the required classes from from Congress. Let's make sure that they, they get all the stuff that they're required to have that's not necessarily like the leadership development stuff. It's more of the, without going into like the details of the classes, but there's mandated classes that every Marine is required to get. So they just kind of fill it with a lot of that stuff. And I think some, something that could be beneficial out of that. And it's, it's actually something I recently got tasked with looking into is possibility of like putting in shoots during fourth phase uh, where they actually get out and, 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 do like another course of fire or something but something else could happen with that i I don't know the answer to it i imagine over the next few months as as this comes down that we'll probably get a little bit more detail in it but that is that is one thing that that we've talked about over the past few weeks is how do we structure fourth phase to get more out of it yeah yeah and it's it's interesting idea for a shoot i what i know about fourth phase i think it's i I like the idea conceptually i think it's probably underdeveloped or you know there are opportunities there for so much as far as continuing to develop these young men and women as as far as their decision making skills you know really cultivating critical thinking skills and using that fourth phase as a means to really energize them even further such that that energy that interest maybe that professional curiosity you develop carries over to SOI and the handoff is perhaps much easier because these young men and women want, they want to, Hey, next step, I'm going to, I'm either going to go to ITB or I'm going to go to MCT and I'm going to do some cool stuff in the field, uh, learn some infantry skills. And this is exciting. Right. And this is, this is a, a cool next step in my development as a Marine. But yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of, a lot of potential in fourth phase, I guess, to sum up my thoughts. Fast forwarding to January, 2011, you report to squad leaders course, was this the was this Islick the infantry squad leaders course? Yeah. Okay. What what was could you just describe what that course was about? You know the quality of the course, staff, what you took from it. Phenomenal course. I think 
you talk to anybody they went through his look before they switched to AIC would say the same thing. Very much a, a hard-nosed course. It was very, very physically and mentally demanding. And we learned it, we learned everything. Like we we did everything from assault stuff to patrolling to mount. To, it was I don't know. It, it it was fun, especially for me. Very refreshing, you know. Spending some time down on the depot and like just wanting to get back to the fleet. Afghanistan starting to pick back up at this time, and then like all I wanted to do was like get back to an infantry unit. So it was very refreshing. Hard course, pretty pretty hard course. It was there was very much decision-making built into it with everything from how you're going to find your packs when they drop them in the wrong place to how you're going to get to different locations without getting that. So it was, it was good. It was, I think it was a really good course. Probably one of the best ones I've been to. How about the staff? Talk to the quality of those instructors. Oh, the staff were phenomenal. You know, by, by this time, SOI had already become an SDA they were handpicked staff over there, so they were highly screened. And then I, I imagine, you know, I wasn't I wasn't at SOI East, but yeah, I imagine they did it the same way they did West Coast. So all the instructors were handpicked from AITB or MCT, like this guy or is phenomenal. We want to pull him over to teach. So they were, you know, the, the best and brightest. So it was good. In May 2011, you join India Company 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, and you deploy with the battalion as a squad leader to Afghanistan, uh, and this is in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. Could you talk about this deployment, what's the battalion doing, what, what's your company doing, and challenges, things like that? It was a fairly interesting workup. So I checked in, and they made me the, the platoon sergeant for all the way up until right before ITX. So I ran as the platoon sergeant all the way up until like a week before our last final exercise. And then they gave me a squad because uh, we had a staff sergeant check-in. It was really good because all the Marines had just gotten back from Sangin. So like three, seven was the initial like clear into Sangin. They weren't there very long, but they did the initial clear in was there. Don't quote me. I don't, I don't know the exact time frame, And then was relieved by three, five. And then we knew we were going back to Sangin. So when I checked in, they're like, oh, you are going back to Sangin. 75% of my platoon had been to Sangin already. Oh. And we're like, this is, it's bad. Let's get ready. So there was, it was kind of like the same thing as my first appointment. And I, you know, I've said it several times, very fortunate. It wasn't hard to get Marines to train. It was like, we know where we're going. It's bad. We're going to be ready. So we spent, we'd go to the field either Monday afternoon or Tuesday morning, and we would stay in the field till Friday morning, and then we'd do it again the next week, and we just reps and sets and reps and sets. I, I would say I was probably better prepared for that deployment than any deployment I'd been on. One, because Twin Palms is the best place to train. Two, most of the company just came back from where we were going. So, like, even as checking in as the platoon sergeant and then getting bumped down to the squad leader, like I had Lance Corporals that were like, you know, hey, Sergeant, like, check this out. Like, this is the, we were pulling up maps. They were talking about areas and they like, they just had a pretty rough tail end of a deployment. And then all that stuff started happening with 3-5. And they're like, oh man, it's getting even worse than it was when they were there. So like, it was no holds bar on like getting trained. You didn't hear anybody complain about it. And they were always pushing. So we got very effective very quickly, I think. What was the deployment? <laughs> you you guys go to Sangin, and that's where you're operating. Yeah, so we operated out of Sangin. My company operated out of Nole, 
And then my platoon was at a patrol base outside of Nole down in the Southern green zone. Uh, and we butted up against the Brits, which was kind of interesting because the company, the company, we, we relieved a company that had only been there for like a month because the battalion we relieved, we took our battalion, took over a battalion plus an additional company's worth of AO. That makes sense. Yeah. And then the company we relieved had only been there for about a month, month and a half. And they like almost stopped patrolling because they knew they were getting ready to go take Kajaki, not Kajaki. Or, no, no, they're going, they're getting ready to go take the dam. They're getting ready to go take the dam. And this is what I was talking about. Uh, Tremblay, Major Tremblay was the company commander of this company. And they were like prepping for all that. So they weren't as actively patrolling in our area because their whole prep was like, we have to go clear to the dam. So it made it for a very interesting first few days. Yeah, that was a lot different fight than Iraq. Iraq was a lot of gunfighting. When we got there, it was a lot of IEDs. Mm. I mean, I think, I think our platoon found like 94, trying not to find them. That's like walking in ditches and walking rooftops. But the, the, we were good. Like the Marines were excellent at finding them. They'd been out there. They'd done it before. My APL received a Purple Heart on the previous deployment. And our patrol base was like right next to where his truck hit an ID where he broke his foot at. He's like, oh, yeah, I sat right there on that corner for four hours. So, like, they knew the area, uh, which I think it, it helped us. It made us a lot more effective. Like, they knew places. They knew, like, like they didn't even do some of the bad guys. Like, we walked up on a house, and my assaultman goes, that dude's bad. I remember him from last year. And we're like, look, all right, let's watch this guy. Literally two days later, we get ambushed, and he was a spotter, and we ended up dropping it. But it was they they knew everybody. It was it was crazy. Yeah, you mentioned less gunfight, more IEDs. To what extent are you interacting with the population? So still a lot of interaction. Again, kind of like we talked about is a lot of carryover from the first one from my first deployment was like we gotta do this. Like this is this is the only way we don't get like completely destroyed. So we would go out and we would, we would try to find people to talk to. We'd try to sit down and like break bread with them in the fields and stuff like that. It was still a little bit different because it was Southern green zone and you know, Karma's a city with like three story apartments and stuff in it. And this is like nothing but, but mud huts and poppy fields and cornfields. So not as much time to be able to do that, but we still try to spend a lot of time like stopping and, and talking and like trying to be just social. What lessons did you take away from this deployment? I think the the reps and sets really sunk in. And and what I mean by that is not just like the workup, like I talked about, you know, we're in the field every single week. So we're constantly, constantly getting work. But then, you know, in, interacting with Major Tremblay and him talking about the scenario where he was ambushed and he was like forcing it. He was like, y'all need to make sure you're doing this as well. And we had... A phenom- had a phenomenal company commander at the time, Captain Simon at the time. He's one of the best leaders I've ever had. And he was very much on like force and that type of stuff as well. So like we we did it. Like we'd be at our patrol base and we would, if we get ambushed here, what are we going to do? Oh, I'm going to go here. Well, if we get ambushed here, what are we going to do? All right. Somebody gets, and it was, it was nonstop. And again, I think I attribute a lot of that to one, the, the Marines knew what they were getting into. Like, the Lance Corporals and my, my APL, like I, that guy like didn't stop. He wanted to make sure we were good. 
you know, are you training in Sangin? It sounds like you're almost doing TDGs or you're doing thought experiments or, you know, thought drills, reaction, mental reaction drills. Well, if we get ambushed here, what, what are we doing? How are you responding to an IED there? I mean, am I hearing you correctly? Oh yeah, hundred percent. So we'd already started doing a little bit of that stuff before we got over. But then when, you know, we, we first ripped, we got there on, landed on Nole and the company commander for the company we're ripping pulls us in. It's like, Hey, here's some scenarios. This is kind of what I recommend doing with y'all. We're like, yeah, we're going to do it. And we pushed out to our patrol bases and it was, and it, it was very much a shock. Like as a squad leader, you go out first, right. As your left seat, right seating. And I wasn't even to my patrol base yet. And our company already had a double amp, right? Like, like very first patrol double amp. Then we're down there. My squad's not even down there with me yet. And we're trying to do the left seat, right seat. And we don't make it out all the way outside the wire and we get hit with the DFC. Uh, so it was like, we were all like, it's, it's going to be bad. You know, we'd read all the stuff about three, five, they had already been there before. So they all wanted to do it. It was very easy. It's like, Hey, we're going here today. And my team leaders and APL and myself would just be like, this happens. What are you going to do? This happens. What are you going to do? And I think it made us highly effective when we were down there. Yeah. In April 2012, your combat meritoriously promoted a staff sergeant. You then deploy back to Afghanistan with 3-7 as a platoon sergeant with India Company. Could you talk a little bit about this deployment? What's the battalion doing this time? What sort of operations? Uh, how does this differ from the Sangin deployment? What do you take away from it? This deployment was drastically different to begin with, like the, from the start, because we went there with the mission to like demill a couple of the bases. So when we first got to Shirgazi, they were like, we're, we're breaking it down. Like we're going to be here a couple months and it's all going down. So we were like working on how to like pill it back. We weren't really patrolling at all. I think, I think we did like two patrols out of there for the first couple months. I mean, the whole time we were there before we pushed everything into a big hole and lit it on fire. So it was, it was, it was kind of a, a lot harder to keep the Marines heads engaged like keep them in the game because they weren't going out they weren't patrolling we weren't you know we didn't we didn't see any contact while we were there so we did spend a lot of time forgot the unit there was a unit a few months before us that had a v-bid hit and guys come in i think just the jordanians owned it at the time i might be i might be mistaken for that one but they came in and like shot up a bunch of people so like we tried to use that scenario to like keep their heads in the game definitely definitely a lot harder like leadership wise to keep them ready when you're not out repping and setting and patrolling and, you know, finding IDs or getting ambushed on a regular basis. Yeah. After that, after we demilled it, we went back to Leatherneck and we started doing raids out of Leatherneck. And that, like, as soon as we got there, the first, again, for very first patrol that anybody from our company went on, my, my company wasn't back, they, or my platoon wasn't back yet. One of the other companies was already back and they went out, their platoon commander and platoon sergeant, a couple of squad leaders went on a raid with the unit that we were ripping up there doing raids. And they got a pretty crazy gunfight like day one. So then we got back a Leatherneck and then now we're starting to prep to do it. So that was very much a motivator to like get the Marines heads right for all the reps and sets. And it was a lot more deliberate because we would have two weeks and we would go out for like two days. So we knew where we were going and we'd do a lot of rehearsals and a lot of rehearsals, but made it, made it pretty good. Looking back on your time as a platoon sergeant, uh, what, if anything, would you have done differently and why? I don't know if there's a, a whole lot I would have done differently. 
Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. There's, there's not, there's not a whole lot I think I'd have done differently. I, I think we were, we were pretty effective. Again, lucky student, the Marine Corps, great platoon commander, pretty solid squad leaders. They're pretty ready. I think, I, I think I probably would have tried to find, or at least think of more ways to keep them engaged at the first area when we were like breaking it down, you know, and, and kind of like looking back now, like the new stuff and how you keep them engaged. We could have done more like more of that because a lot of it was, you know, we had a little computer center set up. It's like, oh, go do Sergeant's course, go do, go do all that other stuff. We weren't sure we were getting ready to go back and do the raids. We thought we were going to get pulled back early. And I like knowing what I know now, I probably would have spent more time running rehearsals there, prepping for the next, like, hey, you know what I mean? We still got to continue to train. What makes a good platoon sergeant? What are the qualities you're, you're looking for? And, you know, how do you develop these? So a good platoon sergeant has to be a good partner. And what I mean by that is the relationship between the platoon commander and platoon sergeant, I think, is one of the most valuable things that you'll ever have. I think that if you see, especially if you, you run into like a little bit more senior officers that don't trust enlisted, usually you can say that they're their first platoon sergeant probably wasn't that. I'm not saying that's always the trigger, but a lot of times if you if you run into officers that are that are very disgruntled or hard to work with, it's usually because their first platoon sergeant wasn't wasn't that good partner. So they don't trust the enlisted, which makes them a whole lot less effective uh, as, as a Marine leader. So I think if there's one thing like all the platoon sergeants, like you need to be at the hip of your platoon commander and you need to have his back and you need to like build him help help build him up like help show him all that other stuff and be a good dude you know and, and, and when it all boils down to it like we're in a people business so you got to be somebody that can that you can work with i think some of the examples are like like my platoon commander when i was a platoon sergeant on that deployment like fen- phenomenal individual i mean he was an ioc instructor you know he's a company commander right now on the seventh marines and like i can't tell you how many times that we would like go behind closed doors and like shut the door and like fight it out like brothers. But then we would go back in front of the Marines and it would be like, this is what the platoon commander decided. You know, sometimes I could bend him my way. Sometimes he wouldn't and it'd be a dumb plan, but we would still fight it together, right? And after, it was very interesting. After like, it was one or two times where like he didn't really want to listen and it kind of looked bad on the back end. And like, I still owned it. Like it was my fault that it was jacked up and it won so many points, right? Like, like relationship wise. And it made us, I think it made us so much tighter together. I think it's easier for a staff sergeant to like lose a little bit with the, with the Marines because he's back in a platoon commander and then get it right back mm. than it is a platoon commander once he loses them. So from that point of view to like close the door, have those conversations, right? The actions of yes been what we tolerated 100%, but then go out and like own it and then go back and close the door again and be like, Next time you want to listen to me, like, I'll be the fall man. Like, you're the platoon commander. I'll be the fall man. But next time we should listen. And you do that, you become the best of friends. And I think it makes you a whole, whole lot more effective platoon. As a former platoon sergeant, what do you expect of your squad leaders? Kind of the same thing with the team leaders. Like, the expectation of Marines, right? Like, care about troop welfare. And what I mean, like we talked earlier, is you ride them so hard that, they, that they're successful, but understand them on a level to take care of them, finding that line and then be a good leader, take care of it, make decisions. Don't ask for everything. I don't, yeah, I think I, there ain't much, I hate worse than like a sergeant asking me how to do something. I'm like, look, man, the intent is this, like how you do it. Like that's on you. Does it look like this at the end of it? Then you're good. If it doesn't like execute.
So Ryan, after returning from your second Afghanistan tour, you're assigned to the School of Infantry West and go through combat instructor school. You then teach at the Infantry Small Unit Leaders course, AKA ISOLC. And while you're there, you run nine courses, four of those as the chief instructor. So you know, I'd like to know what was that experience like and how did it influence the way you understand and practice maneuver warfare? So I'll be honest with you, I think that that was probably one of the biggest turning points in my career was getting to work there. I mean, actually, when I first started there was when I first met you, uh, which was kind of neat. And then um, just the way that we taught was so much different, you know, prior to being a hat and spending time, like even in combat instructor school, like learning the old way to teach things, you know, like here is exactly what we're going to teach off of PowerPoint. And there's not a whole lot of creative thinking behind it, right? Everything's very scripted to then go to a course like that to where you know, when we first got there, the big thing was throw everything out the window. You know what I mean? Like, let's let's come up with a new way to do things. So we ended up doing a lot of different sand table exercises and decision forcing cases and a lot of just discussions. You know, there was no classes that we taught when I was there that were that were actually like PowerPoint type classes. Everything was, you know, let's read some stuff. Let's talk about something that had happened in history and how does it affect the next decision that we're going to be making yeah. all the way down to the way we designed the training for the Marines while we were out there. Try to make everything um, build your own adventure type of thing, which kind of made it extremely challenging, I think, from the staff point of view, because we had to reserve ranges and reserve training areas. And the way that we had to do it had to make it to where, you know, if the Marines went fast, we were able to flex and, and, and go further. Or if we needed to stay in an area longer because the scenario hadn't quite driven them there, we, we had to be able to have that opportunity for, for them to be able to make the decisions. So it was, it was really fun, definitely challenging course. And I remember you guys talking about some of the challenges in your field exercises, like what you were just describing, and that it sounds like you gave the students a considerable amount of freedom to do things in the field and go about you know, the mission in a way that they thought was most appropriate, that would be most effective. Could you just talk a little more about those challenges and how you would try to work around those? So a lot of it had to do with the injects that we would give them as we would go through. And I think uh, one of the best examples would be after I took over as chief, we started taking them out to Yuma Proving Grounds to Mm -hmm. be able to run training out there, which made it a little bit easier on us as a staff because nobody else was out there training at the time when we started out there. So we owned everything. But we were still limited by, you know, when we had to come back to Camp Pendleton, you know, when we were going to get out there and different situations like that. So there would be times that we would have to add extra injects to try to make them push a little faster or on the flip side of it, right? Like we didn't want them to run through the entire scenario in, you know, two days. And then now we're just sitting out there with our hands, mm-hmm. you know, crossed. So just making sure that as we were anticipating some of the decisions that they were going to make, we were making sure as we were using our uh, op four that we would use them in a way to, you know, maybe not give them as much information as, as we did the previous class or give them more information to be able to try to like speed them up and encourage them to do that. But the whole goal was still to have them be the ones to come up with it. Right. It's not, not a, like, here's exactly what, what has to happen next. Definitely try to tie it to, you know, the build your own adventure. You know, if you make this decision then you know, one of these three things is going to happen next and just try to be able to drive it that way. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to learn more about the maybe intellectual shift that you experienced coming from 
you know, or having a background of coming from the drill field and that sort of, of approach to, to teaching people and to learning and then being in something as, I guess, free flowing. And as you said, choose your own adventure, like, and critical and, and creative thinking course as much as ISOLC was. So I think a lot of that, one, I was very blessed to be able to work with some very intelligent individuals, you know, and with, with, you know, Josh and Adam and, and being able to work with those and, and Neil McCoy and just coming in to like those individuals, I think that they might've already been a little bit further along that creative thinking type of brainwave than, mm -hmm. than I probably was at the time, because I'd spent so much more time very strict in like the military process. So being able to work with those individuals really kind of brought it out. I mean, I think some of it, it really drove it home was, you know, we started doing the decision forcing cases and the situational judgment test and like coming up with ways to like make you think it was very interesting to be able to sit around and have conversations on like how to, how to do something or how to execute something. And I found myself in these conversations, like thinking about several different ways, you know, to, to, to skin the cat, if you will, and having that ability to, to kind of bounce those ideas off some other incredibly intelligent people. I feel like it made me have to think more. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense to, to, to really like look at situations from different point of views. How do we get there? What are other ways to be able to be more effective in everything that we do? And I think that was kind of like the aha moment as, as, as we sat down and started working through some of these, these tests, whether it was, like I said, the decision forcing cases or the situational judgment tests that we, that we wrote up to be able to evaluate them on, or even the sand table exercises, because we, when we were building all this stuff, we were running everything with the few of us before we even got students. So like the ideas that we were already coming up with and just seeing how different people did things and then trying to morph that into something you were already doing. I think it really just, just kind of forces you to start thinking kind of outside the box. You know, maybe it's not, it doesn't have to be so structured in how we learn stuff. Yeah. I've asked Adam Duval and Neil McCoy this, or at least something similar to it. So I'll ask you, what was your initial reaction to seeing me at ISOLC? And yeah, just what, what did you think of me working with you guys initially? So it was kind of interesting, I think, for me, because I hadn't graduated yet from combat instructor school, but I knew I was coming. But I do remember coming in and y'all had already been working a little bit. And I like, like walked in and they're like, yeah, we met this guy. And I've heard their podcast with you already and some of the comments, but it was, it was definitely like, who is this guy? No military background going to come in and tell us about war fighting, you know? And yeah. most of us had already been to Afghanistan, several combat deployments. And we're like, Oh, here's this, here's this educator going to teach us about war fighting. And I think the first decision force in case you gave us was the guy Gabalding one. It was one of the first ones that I remembered. And it's like, like, he's like Florida. I think all of us, I remember like talking through it because like, in the room we were fighting about it already you know like like no i'm gonna do this well no you shouldn't do that and it it was very interesting how you how you kind of pulled that out of us i don't i don't think it took longer than about 20 30 minutes of interaction and, and you were all our favorite instructor you know so it turned out really well well i am i am uh very appreciative of that and, and humbled so thank you you're a big proponent of decision forcing cases and other decision games could you Talk about why you find DFCs in particular so effective. I think it's um, the fact that it actually happened. You know, it, it really drives it home. I, I can't tell you how many times in my career we've done like TDGs and 
at the end of it, you're like, well, yeah, this is something that, that could happen, right? But mm-hmm. but there's no facts. There's none of that. And then also just the the remembering it, right? Remembering the story, remember how it happened, and like remembering all the stuff that just it sinks in more with it, you know. And and I think it makes it more relatable. You know, for instance, the the other day I was having a conversation about the ability to land nav and how it's important across all ranks. And then I started talking about Nazaria, mm. right? And and I've taught the DFC so many times, but it wasn't even that. It was just like how much because it is a story that when I was telling it, like at the end of it, somebody's like, you're at Nazaria. I was like, no, 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 I wasn't there. You know what I mean? Like I, right. I wasn't there. I'm not trying to say that, but like you tie the story back into it. But when it's an actual story and you can start giving it, it, it like makes people suck in more to it. Yeah. And I think you learn more from the learning points behind that. I think that's really what what gets me and why I like it so much better than than like a regular TDG. Yeah, and it's it's interesting your comment about Nazaria because I've heard similar comments from other instructors, you know, folks at TBS who would remark that if they ended up developing or facilitating decision forcing cases, that in and of itself, that process of learning the case, learning the facts of the case, or doing the research for a case was itself PME, you know, it was individual PME and that when they were say doing debriefs or they they were out in the field talking with students, they'd find themselves drawing on what they had learned in researching or developing or teaching those cases for other purposes. You know, let's say the person learned or facilitated a case uh, about a night attack in Korea and they would talk about that example or some of the interesting you know, or, or relatable facts and conditions from there to what the students getting ready for a night attack were going to do. Or, And I, I think that's kind of to the same point, right? Like, even if you don't develop them, and I, I think of some of the ones that like the, um, the ambush one that Neil McCoy wrote, you know, like I never gave that or taught that case. However, I've used that story a thousand times, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just, it, it resonates once you hear it that way. And I, I think you even told us this, like when we were given some of those first classes about like how folklore happens, right? Like it's, yeah. it's people around, around the fire telling stories and like, that's how we develop how people think about it. And then it drives right back into like the combat hunter mindset of building file folders inside your brain. And the more that you see things and hear things, whether you read them or their stories, or, or whatever else help you to be able to operate in that scenario a little bit better, right? You can almost, the, the, the coup day, right? As we say, like, the, as you can see through or see what's going to happen next. So I definitely think that helps a lot with those aspects of it. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely a link between stories, you know, vicarious experiences, uh, recognition, prime decision-making. Yeah, it was really cool to see you guys do what you did at ISOLC and evolve over time. And, you know, really, I think... Put things like DFCs and decision games to the fore of, of your teaching. Very impressive stuff. Ryan, what's your favorite DFC and why? So it's it's hard. My favorite one to facilitate, I think, is is probably the one about Tony Vigiani. Yeah. Which you built, right? Yeah, which which I was fortunate enough to be able to, you know, to work with Vigiani for a while and he helped yeah. me build the case about him. And he would come in and do it. So it's it's very fun to be able to facilitate that one, I think, just because I had, I had so much uh, interaction with Vigiani uh, to build the case. So to be able to do that one was really neat. And then to be in, to like 
to be the student. I think I still think Gaga Baldinger. I think he changed the name of it, but that one's always one of my favorite ones to like see happen. Yeah, because uh, there's so many like weird decisions that like people make, and they and they really draw it out. Yeah, I just taught taught it recently. Um, actually, I think two days in a row, and very different crowds. You know, one group of infantry instructors, and then another part of a bulk fuel company, and just in, in both groups, the, the conversations are lively, the, the decisions are kind of brain scratchers and, and to also watch people change their opinions, both, you know, either for or against what to do with this Marine is um, really neat to see. I, I, it's a personal favorite of mine for sure. If we could talk a little more about, I think it's called Hornet's Nest, right? That's the Vigiani case. You know, two, two things that I remember of that. One is you would teach it, I think, or you facilitated it over a sand table or terrain model, right? Yeah, I did. I've, I've actually taught it everything from over a sand table, the giant sand table in ISIL. Mm. Also did it as a PME with the tactics instructors at Officer Candidate School. Mm. So I pulled the sergeants in and for that one, I actually took my son's Lego table and built like a uh, terrain model with the Legos yeah. and did it with that one, which is, which is pretty interesting. And he was actually there for that one as well. So I used to bring him in for a lot of them. He didn't hit all the ones that we've taught, but to be able to have him in the back of the classroom when we're teaching, it's always fun. Yeah, and I, I want to ask you about that in a, in a moment. What, I mean, most DFCs, I mean, at least the ones that I see are facilitated using a PowerPoint, lots of pictures to help tell the story. But you, did you find it more challenging or easier or, or you know, was there advantages and disadvantages you, you encountered using a terrain model, whether it was, you know, the sand table at ISOLC or your son's Legos in facilitating this case? So I always tried to use both, right? So I would have pictures of the terrain so they could see it, but really liked having the sand table there, the terrain model, because we would pull out cards and make them place the units how they would around the sand table. So you could actually see it as if you were doing like a rock walk, yeah. uh, something like that, where they would be able to place them through it. And I think you really got a lot out of the uh, the students when you're giving it that way, because then they're up, they're like up in the train model, especially the one at ISO. Like you remember that thing was massive. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, I think it was like eight feet by 16 feet or something like that big. So to have them like get in the train model and move these big pieces around was, I think, really pulled a lot out of it because then they could start seeing the geometries of fire where they were setting them up and that would come out of it even though that wasn't necessarily something we were originally planning on yeah. the DFC getting out, they, it, it would still kind of draw it out anyways, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I really seems to be focused on the art of warfare and decision-making and those sorts of things, but you know, science is still there. And it sounds like it came out almost as a happy accident with this example of geometries of fire. Did you find that the cases you guys facilitated ended up having multiple uses or you know secondary benefits for your students oh yeah and th th there would always be extra stuff that would come out of it or even stuff that you would think like the, the Vigiani case for instance like I went in building it looking for one outcome right based off of the stuff that I read and kind of what some of the information like in some of the books about it were and then you go talk to him and it's like, well, it didn't happen exactly that way. So you're able to kind of clean up some of the story mm -hmm. and then it kind of transitions what the outcome of it is or what some of those good talking points are. 
So that part is always good. And then another one I think that is interesting is Hill 488 that Neil McCoy built and like the fires. And yeah, we, we, the main purpose was that one was to really like work the fires aspect of it and kind of how they would integrate those fires if they were up there. But then as you get into it and, and he's teaching it, they start pulling out a lot of like the, the, the human dimension aspect of what it is. So it's, it's, there's always added stuff, even depending on who the students are that are there and like type of information that they put in, I always think is very interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm always impressed when you go into a DFC as a facilitator and you, you think, Hey, these two, three, four themes are probably going to come up and we'll address those. And that's often where the conversation goes. And maybe it does go that way, but then each group may have a different spin or they may deep dive into one area or aspect, or they look at the situation from a different perspective or bring something up you've never heard before, which is always as a facilitator of interesting. I learn every time I run a DFC, but it's cool to kind of be there learning side by side with them and hearing something you hadn't heard before, considering again, a component or an aspect, a viewpoint of the case. One other thing I wanted to hit on before we moved on was the experience of having Gunnar Vigiani in the classroom and how you leverage that. Were there challenges associated with it? And you know, what advice might you give to a facilitator who wants to have the protagonist involved in a case? So I've been fortunate enough to do the Nazaria one with Colonel Whitnam as well, and that one with Vigiani. And, I, and, and I'll tell you, it's it's almost nerve wracking as the facilitator because you don't want to mess up the story, right? Like it's, it's their story. You want it to be as accurate as possible. You want to make sure that like the situations are in. So that part is a little nerve wracking, but I think the biggest thing is when you're facilitating them is making sure, and it's whether they're there or not, is kind of like rule number one is we're not going to like talk trash about the decision they made. We'll just mm -hmm. talk about ways we could have been better. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're not the Monday morning quarterback, just, talking about about the decisions uh, which was interesting because i did have one the one that i did at officer candidate school i had a marine in there that started getting a little making some comments that that were just more very professional you know and and having having vigiani in the back and trying to like steer away from the, the unprofessionalism aspect of it and he, he was a young marine and we were able to kind of fix some of that as we went through it but trying to make sure they're that way because you don't want that and then you want it to be as accurate as possible and then the second thing is, is go over with them before, especially if it's not somebody like the Vigiani one I, I taught with him, the Nazaree one, actually you, you gave it to me to be able to start teaching, right? Like I think you had built it already. And then, you know, I'd went back and like read in some of the books and, and some of that to try to make sure that we cleaned up everything to be able to get it. And then I sit down and I'm talking with Colonel Whitnam, who was Captain Whitnam at the time. He said, well, that was actually a little bit different than that. I was like, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I got it out of the book like this. He goes, yeah, I've never even read the book. It's, you know, it's just kind of, so to be able to sit down with them and kind of talk through it to make sure that you get all the details right, I think is if possible, you really want to do that. Mm -hmm. I was kind of unable to spend more than about 15 minutes with him before I gave the class because one, I mean, he's a colonel, you know, busy guy. And he, and he, he was kind of busy at the time. So he came down and sat in the back of the classroom. But then the interaction from the students afterwards is always phenomenal because they, they have like a lot more questions and they're able to be able to like clear up the like, why did you really make that decision? And I, I think that that one is one of the best questions is like, you know, just to have one of the sergeants look at Colonel Whitman and be like, sir, why, why did you make that? Like what was going through your mind and him to be able to like explain like, 
this is this is what a situation and it's like a light bulb like oh man you know like you can find yourself in that type of situation and 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 sometimes you're just stuck in a dilemma right like it's neither decision is great but you got to make one right. uh, and 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 to be able to put that and back to like the decision forcing cases versus tdg thing is like there's no wishing away anything like you that is the decision that you had to make and you know and just about all the ones that we gave like it was it was almost like there might not even be a right answer it's just like the better of the two and then to have them to be able to sit there and talk about that on the backside is very valuable i think yeah i'd agree always had like a really beneficial experience uh having the protagonist there particularly when it comes to the interaction that occurs after the case between the participants and and the protagonists it seems you know having that person who lived the experience and and who's on hand to respond to questions about it go into greater detail seems to make the the case just take on so much more meaning and, and worth and, and value so big fan of that if anyone's looking to uh to do something similar ryan could you talk about how you facilitate a, a dfc what techniques do you find effective and why i think one of the biggest thing is just getting the setting the stage mm-hmm. and then letting them do it and we talk about this a lot. We talk about facilitation is like, it's all about the right questioning, right? Like you got to be able to get the questions that get other people talking. And then as soon as you can get two two students disagreeing, like you want, right? Yeah. I think that that was always, as soon as I could get two heart strongly disagreeing with each other, then it would almost pull in the rest of the class. Yeah. So that was always the try to goal is to try to like get them to do that. And then when they do it, they start picking each other's plans apart. Yeah. And then that's when you really just start peeling back uh, the thread. And I think that's when the best com- conversation comes out. Yeah. And you know, I'm curious, you've facilitated DFCs in several different settings, uh, several different commands between ISOLC, talked officer candidate school. We'll get to your experience at 3-1 and weapons training battalion. But how, if at all, has your facilitation changed over the course of time and working at these different places, or do you find yourself, you know, pretty satisfied with the techniques you use? The student population has a say, right. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's very much who you're talking to, I think depends on like what you're trying to, to pull out. Right. And, and I'm not saying that like every rank always has a phenomenal thing to say about it. Right. I've heard some of the best stuff from some, you know, we, we talked before about, we're doing it with recruits right now. Right. And some of the stuff that they're saying for that is like phenomenal, but there's still like a different going into it when it comes out of it is, is uh, we're going to talk about how three, one, one of the first field ops I did, I sat down and had some conversations with all the platoon commanders that, that were in my company. And the way that I did that was a little bit different than the way I would do it with the sergeants, just because they need to have different perspective and where they're at. And I think that that's really what it is, is knowing who your audience is, what level they are, and, and what are you really trying to pull out of it? Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's get to 3-1. So April 2017, you're promoted to gunnery sergeant. Uh, you join Weapons Company, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines as the operations chief. Uh, and you deploy with the battalion from July 2018 to December 2019 as part of the 13th Mew. So could you talk about the company, talk about the deployment, What's it like to, to be a weapons company operations chief on a MU, things like that? It was kind of a unique experience because we didn't, we didn't deploy normal because we ended up running 
a split arc. So the ship I was on and with it being weapons company, our company split over all three ships. Mm -hmm. So the way that, that we ended up doing it is like my company commander and company first sergeant were on one boat, myself and my XO were on another boat with the cap platoon. And then, um, and then we had one of our senior platoon sergeants with one of our senior cap platoon commanders on another boat. So we were spread out everywhere, which made it very interesting for me, right? Because as the operations chief, you're supposed to be really a part of the FSCC, running a lot of those drills. But then I found myself on a boat with like a cap platoon just because of the way that, that we ended up splitting up. And then we ended up somewhere completely different than the rest of the MU, right? And I ended up, I guess we could say very fortunate. I think this is probably one of the things that helped me become a gunner more than anything is because my boat ended up going up into the med. And then when we went up into the med, we ended up getting to do some training with the Italians. Mm. So we pulled one of the platoons, uh, actually a rifle platoon off of our boat to train with the Italians. And with me being the senior enlisted infantryman on the boat, they sent me to go set up the training along with my XO. And then they ended up just keeping me and my XO in Italy for like six weeks. So we ended up hanging out with the San Marcos Brigade and there's really no Marine. I mean, I wasn't training any Marines. It was myself and, and a captain running around Italy, building a playbook for the next Mew to come up there to be able to train with the Italians. So looking at all their ranges, figuring out all the extra process there is to deal with foreign military and, and what they need for their ranges, which was a good, great experience. I think we built like a hundred page book like SOP on how to how to work with the San Marcos Brigade and what ranges are available and what you can shoot and what all the paperwork is required to be able to shoot and everything mm -hmm. else so that was pretty fun I mean that sounds really interesting if if you would I'd love to hear more about it you know what was it like working with the Italians because at this point I mean correct me if I'm wrong you've worked with ground forces of Kenya Qatar you've worked with the ANA and now the Italians so what's it like working with them? And I imagine coming up with this SOP is, was fun, but also a bit of a challenge. Is that correct? Uh, yes, <laughs> they, there's definitely a lot more red tape we had to get through to be able to, to train with them. Okay. However, it was, it was really good. I mean, one of the, um, the liaison they linked us up with out there was actually a graduate of TBS. Right. So he was, yeah, he was an Italian officer. He's actually I, still a friend of mine. I, I still talk to him yeah. uh, on social media from time to time, but he had actually came back and went through TBS a few years prior, spoke really good English. Yeah. Uh, and he was like our, our liaison the whole time, wow. taking us to all the places. So it made it really, really easy from that aspect of it. But just the whole cultural aspect was really neat to see how that they very um, structured military. I'd say, the, the way that they run their day-to-day -day operations is, you know, the entire San Marcos Brigade gets in formation every single morning and watches the colors come up, right? And they do all these things like very much together as, as a unit, mm -hmm. which was pretty neat to see. And then just to kind of pick apart some of their, their SOPs and kind of how they have, you can see where they've sent actual several of their officers that have been through either TBS or some of our other schools and how they're like trying to bring some of our SOPs over and, and, and having those types of conversations was, was very fun. Interesting. 
So in June 2019, you're assigned to Officer Candidate School and you served as the tactics chief there. So what did this position entail and could you talk about your experience at OCS in general? For one, it was kind of a weird, surprising set of orders because I didn't ask for them. I was submitting for the gunner package. I was slated to go to WTI when we got back from the deployment when we got them. So I was kind of upset that I did get them. Yeah. Um, but everything works out for a reason because obviously I got selected. My family was already out there. But for officer candidate school, it was it was interesting to say the least, I think, especially being in tactics and like my, my whole goal was to, you know, become a gunner, mm-hmm. you know, do infantry stuff. So like to get that role the whole time I'm trying to spin ways to like do more infantry stuff at officer candidate school. So we're going over to TBS, we're talking to them, like trying to bring it back. And there was one thing that was said to me that was very interesting by a major that, that I have a lot of respect for. And he's like, we're like trying to ramp all this up. And he goes, look, he's like, look, Ryan, just calm down. He goes, Hey, one, our job here is not, it's not like recruit training where you're training them. Right. It's, it's this is a screening process. And he was like, and I just, we just need to develop leadership. And, you know, we do a lot of, we do some infantry stuff and being at the tactics portion, it's, it's, that's all we did was, you know, teach orders process, the teaching how to patrol, the teach how to do all that stuff. And I wanted to ramp it up, right? Like, how do we ramp it up, ramp it up and do more so TBS can do more so we can go on. It's like, it's the sole purpose of that. That's what he told me. was like to make sure that they can lead. He goes, I don't care what vessel we use. He goes, it could be how to work on a truck or how to, how to, maintenance something he goes the goal of this is like do these young candidates have leadership potential do they have the ability to become good leaders we're going to teach them all that infantry stuff at tbs and the ones that become infantry officers are going to go to all uh, to infantry officers course but we just need to get to that Mm -hmm. i think when he told me that it really kind of changed my thinking process on how we did it right so you still want to build the foundations and i think this ties back to some of the conversations we had on like what comes first, the art or the science. Mm -hmm. And I think leadership ties more to like the artistic ability to think through problems and come up with solutions. And the science is more like, this is what a machine gun does, right? So it was very interesting to see like officer candidate schools motto was more of like a art first, right? Like let's develop leaders and and that other stuff's going to come. So I thought that part was pretty neat. And, you know, once that happened, it kind of changed the way we try to drive the, the tactics instructors to get stuff right. Still making sure that we're harping on, you know, what are some of those hard skills, but making sure that as we're building these, the SULIs that we did, right, the small unit leadership evaluations, we're all designed about how do you make them think and how do you make them come out of problems? And then how do they get other people to, to do what needs to happen, right? Are they, are they the leader that's just like, thumb on them the whole time like I just do what I say because I say it are they the type of leader that's gonna you know step back and give those resources to the to the rest of of the candidates to be able to execute and get through the problems and like feed them that way right yeah. and then we're able to kind of rack and stack them and, and kind of pull that aspect out of it so I think that was pretty neat to be able to see that side of officer candidate school how did teaching the facilitation techniques you saw used at OCS compared to what you'd seen at ISOLC and, and other places, similar, different, a combination of the two? Uh, it's still a little bit more structured at the time. I think they've been working on changing some of the facilitations. I was, I was only there for a few months, but they, they have, when I was leaving, they were talking about changing a lot of that stuff. 
I've been fortunate enough. There was a bunch of us that came to the IW and worked with you over there while, while we were out there. So they were trying to change, but a lot of it was still very much like the PowerPoint. Let's get through this aspect of it. And then let's, let's get out to the, to the woods and, and do stuff. Mm-hmm. So that part of it was really good. Like we tried to spend a lot of time out doing practical application type of evaluations, but it was still the, the classroom Gomez style which I think is it's it's almost needed in a situation like that because you are teaching 200 and something people at one time. It's a lot harder to do like a good decision forcing case or something like that and really draw it out in that type of environment. If you could, Ryan, change anything you wanted about OCS, what, what do you think it would be and why? I think that's, that's kind of a hard one. I, I think we got it pretty close to right. Like the process is, is pretty good, I think. I think if anything, it would be, actually, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take that back. And the reason I'm going to take it back is recently I've been exposed to the new IMC course. I don't know if you're familiar with that yet. You said you've been up there. So they're running, so they've ran three on the West Coast and there's one currently going on the East Coast, the Infantry Marine course. And what they're doing that I, I think is is hugely beneficial is just about everything is broken down one instructor to 14 privates and they teach all the classes. So they're teaching, you know, and I, I, I talked to the guy that's running the one out on the West coast earlier this week. And he's like, the, the outcome is drastically better. He's like, we don't teach any classes like big PowerPoint classes anymore. The weight is on that instructor and it's one Sergeant with 14 privates. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you could probably mirror that at officer candidate school is it's very much like one to 14, like that's what you own. Yes, you still run as a platoon of, you know, three or four squads per 14, depending on the throughput that's needed. Uh, But it still comes down to a manpower issue. Uh, But the classes are owned by those individual sergeants. So it's a lot heavier burden on the instructor, but in turn, it gives you a lot better sergeant getting back to the fleet that just ran a couple of those cycles. And then also there's a lot more one-on-one or one to 14 ratios for everything that they do. Uh, I think that they could look at something along those lines, but again, that's still one of those. It's like, it's kind of tricky because it's the goal of that is to screen out the good ones, right? Like, like if, if you can't lead, we don't need you. Right. So I probably, you could probably come up with a hybrid between what the IMC student to instructor ratio is looking like and kind of what they're currently doing now. And I think you could probably up the quality a little bit. Yeah, that's something I'd definitely like to see tried out at least. So Ryan, you're selected to become a warrant officer and then became a gunner. And this involved you going to both the warrant officer basic course and the infantry weapons officer course at the basic school. Could you talk about your experiences in these courses and if you would start with uh, the basic school uh so the basic school i was in a very interesting basic course because i was there when covid broke out Mm. so we ended up missing some of our field time which i think could have been hugely beneficial but again i thought it it was a pretty good experience to go through be able to throw in that bunch of different mos's you know warrant officers from all across the marine corps and they spread us out because there was only five of us gunners in the class and eight platoons so they put us all in different ones so to be able to like interact with a lot of different MOSs and like how they do things and again all these are you know top selected guys and gals out of their MOS to be able to go through this whole process was was pretty good you know we still did a few decision forcing cases it was actually interesting they did the one the fangs of the lone wolf the one that Neil McCoy built while I was there as a student I thought that was kind of interesting 
So when they get when they gave that one up, but yeah, it, it, it I think it was. I think ISOP was mimicked a little bit more after TBS than a lot of other schools, right? There was still a lot of sand table exercises and, and a lot more of that creative thinking type of aspect of it. And I think that just ties directly back into what we talk about, right? Like, how do you develop good leaders? You develop good leaders by putting them in uncomfortable situations and making them think their ways out, think their way out of it. And there was a lot of that in the basic school. And uh, following the warrant officer basic course, what, what was the infantry weapons officer course like? All right, so IWOC is probably one of the best courses I've ever been to. Yeah. One, because it's, it's a small class, right? Like there's five students in the class led by a chief warrant officer for gunner. And then we had, we actually had Neil McCoy was our staff in COIC nice. of the course, right? So to, to have him in there is like, somebody we'd already worked with. And then there was another staff sergeant there. So it's three main instructors, right? And the five of us students. And then the course itself was was very, it was, it was a good course because we had to teach everything to each other. Like it wasn't nothing, again, it's kind of the same thing. There wasn't a whole lot of like, this is exactly how you do it. It was day one, we check in, hey, Ryan, you're in charge of the mortar package. You know, Jeff, you're in charge of the machine gun package. And, and like you have these many days, build it all. You have to give the briefs. You have to build all the SDZs. Um, then you have to make sure everybody else in your class knows everything about it, ready to go. So that aspect of it was fun because it was th the five of us like working together to get through everything while we were, we were there. And then we had the opportunity to go see and do a lot of stuff while we were there because of it. You know, they, they put us in situations where we had to build a build a range on Quantico, build a range. And the scenario they build us is you have to build training for uh, a company supported in Pennsylvania. And then you have to build a training package for an entire MU in California, but you're not in California, you're in some other country, right? And, and how do you build that? Everything from the environmental aspect of it that you have to go to, to what weapon systems can be where and how you're going to load everybody or get everybody there and train them so so it was really neat to be able to kind of go through those scenarios but everything was scenario driven it was wow. this is you this is what you have figured out how you're going to execute it and then we would build the plan right and then they would come back and, and, and pick it apart so that part was, was was really good really good course yeah sounds really neat. so ryan you're currently back to paris island for the third time uh, what's your experience like there now? And I'd especially like to hear about the cool things you're doing with the Crucible and the integration of decision forcing cases into the Crucible. I got back down to Paris Island at a very interesting time. So, you know, we talked a little bit about the IMC course. Well, with them starting a new course at SOI, it takes 14 weeks, right? It extends it. You need more personnel. So they had to cut down on some hours that they were teaching at MCT. So then that falls down to Paris Island. And that just happened to happen a week after I checked in down here, which made it really fun because my first tasker after being here was, hey, you just added all these hours from MCT and here's these new TNR tasks that need to be taught, build a plan to do it. So that made it really fun talking about like right place, right time. Because mm -hmm. when I first got down there, it was, you know, nothing had really changed from the last time I left. Right. And it, it, it makes me think of like, you know, John Boyd's got a paper on creation and destruction. He, he talks about a lot of stuff in it. But one thing that really like drove home to me was like, you're either getting better or getting worse. You're, there's no such thing as stagnant. Right. Like you can't be the same. Right. 
you know, every molecule is either breaking down or building up. And I, and I thought about that when I got back down there, I was like, man, nothing has really changed. But then we get there and it was like, man, you got to change all this right now. So to be, a, be able to be a part of that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, Cause we took it and we, you know, extended basic warrior training out somewhere now it's almost a week instead of just two days and then started grading and evaluating stuff that, that we haven't been doing before. So just up the whole level of all that. So being fortunate enough to be a part of that and being able to work with a lot of really good individuals to help come up with those plans was really cool. And then right after that, they're like, all right, we changed that. Let's, let's, we're on a roll. Let's, let's make some improvements to the crucible. So we looked at the crucible and uh, we, we modified some stuff on it, trying to making sure that we had to stay with inside general Krulax messaging of it, right? Like what is the purpose of the crucible? Well, like it sounds, it's, it's the crucible, right? So we crucify these kids and, and bring them back up in, in, in the blood of, of the Marine Corps, right? So it has to be hard, has to be firm, has to challenge them both physically and mentally and build these attributes of what we say a Marine is, right? So like a Marine is somebody who can decide, communicate and act. They're physically tough. They're mentally tough, have high character, right? Like, and that's what we wanted to get out of it. So we had, to, so we looked at this structure that we already had of these, you know, these big six. So it was like six groups that would just move to these big objectives and spend this, you know, four hour time going through all these different events. And again, working on all that stuff and we're like, well, let's, let's, let's shake it up. Let's, let's get a little bit more mission tactics in there. Let's write some more fragos, some more orders to kind of drive through it to start hitting that stuff. So what we did is we took it and we broke it all apart. And we took those six main events and inside those six, there's all these other little objectives that are part of it as well. And we made 24 objectives all over the area. Again, this is linking it back very similar to something the West Coast has been doing already for a little while and then make them operate more independently. Hmm. So instead of moving in these big groups from place to place, now it's moving as a squad from place to place with that, with that drill instructor acting as that, that crucible team leader taking them through each objective from point to point to point and now all of them they, there's a, a frago that goes along with them uh, and then we tried to link them all together hmm. so you get one objective that's we called it the battle of marja but the tie-in is uh is you have to hit a bunker at the end of the runway that's set up to try to keep aircraft from coming in hmm. and taking over and seizing the airfield so you, you hit the the back of their position and then two objectives later, it's like, oh, you found out you didn't get there in time. And it actually shot down a helicopter. So now you have to go do a trap mission. Oh, interesting. Uh, so, we, so we try to tie a lot of stuff like that into it. Again, trying to make them think through. Now with it, as we were coming through it, we realized that like, it's arguably quite a bit harder for both the drill instructors and the hats. So instead of going like four hours and stopping for a little bit and resetting and then go, it's, it's constant. So yeah. you finish one. You get a debrief, throw something in your face and go to the next one. Mm -hmm. And it's just a constant flow. So we built in some, some more decision-making time and that's what we wanted to fill it with. So we ended up putting two decision forcing cases in there, which was interesting yeah. to be honest with you. I, 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 uh, I tried really hard to get the, um, the decision forcing case, the battery six one or yeah, the patrol yeah. in Arizona. They had some pretty valid points for why not using that one. I don't really want to get into this one. I, I like that aspect of standing up and telling somebody, no, I'm not doing it. But maybe not, maybe not their first introduction of infantry officers. So yeah, we decided to can uh, can ask us offline. <laughs> we we decided to steer away from that one. Yeah. Uh, but no, it, so we were able to put those in there, and I, I think it was it was almost got a lot better response than I thought. And I, I was able to go, and we we ran three iterations of this 
this crucible, the modification. And I've been able to go over and one watch some of the decision forcing cases. And then I actually gave one. I took one, you know, I was like the drill instructor was, was going through and I was like, just let me, let me get it for a second see how this goes. Right. Which is one exciting to me to be able to get back and like teach like that. I, I don't have as much time standing in front of people teaching as, as just planning stuff now. So, and it was interesting to hear the recruits responses to mm-hmm. something like that and to be able to think, and you could definitely tell at the beginning they were like, somebody's asking me what I want to do, right? You know, which was like, it was like a shocking factor, which is, which is interesting. But then as we started talking and, and started asking the questions and I did the farmer one, so we're, we're drawing out the decisions of uh, how are you supposed to get through this field? You know, you have, have some of your, uh, your, your platoon somewhere else is trapped. There's a farmer and, you know, it always comes out. It's like, what are we going to do with this kid, right? Are we going to like... I'm going to, I'm going to hold a knife to this farmer's head and make me walk through it. Or, or I'm going to go back because they're worried about the IDs and something I hadn't heard. And I, and I've given this DFC probably 10 times, 10, 20 times. And sure enough, out of a recruit, he's like, I mean, he's a farmer. He's got to have animals somewhere. I'm going to grab all those animals and make them run through the field. And maybe they'll trip the IDs and I'm just going to follow their path. And I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. You know? Yeah. Uh, if nothing, it's, it's a creative way. I mean, I don't think PETA would be too happy to hear about that, but the idea is that the recruit is thinking about ways to solve this unique problem. And I mean, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm curious about the, I guess, how you're facilitating these are, you know, are you having them get in like a school circle? Or are they doing this in a classroom? What, what does it look like? All right, so, so it's one of the objectives in the 24 objectives of the crucible. So they get a mission to, and every objective they patrol from one point to the next. So they patrol over. And the two that we do, one of them is underneath some cami netting in the trees. Mm. Uh, and the other one is underneath, we call it a Thunderdome, but it's uh, a big tin mm-hmm. roofed building uh, that they sit under. And they come in in a school circle and it's a one to 20 rate, one to 16 to 18 ratio where they give it. And we did build ones or we used the, the easier ones that we talked about, something that somebody could just read off of because we have, you know, anywhere from 24 to 40 something drill instructors running through this every week. And to be able to make sure all of them are as proficient in this, we saw that as something like we just don't have time to do that right so some conversations with it and then we give them something that they can read with some set questions just to spark conversation and we found it very beneficial and what was interesting is one of the after actions i actually read yesterday from a company that went through last week was like we want more time on the dfcs Hmm. and i was like that's that's interesting because a lot of people down here like hey we just keep pushing the recruits keep pushing the recruits but it was you know there was good conversation that was coming up. The recruits were coming up with good things. We wanted to hear what else they had to say. And I was like, that's to me was like, like an aha moment. Like, like we're getting them there. We're getting them to start thinking, which is part of it, right? Like, like when we said the purpose of the crucible one is to, to, to break them down, to push them so physically and mentally that they, that they're like, Oh man. And then just take them two more steps further and then bring them on the backside of this and, and give them that eagle globe and anchor. And with this is I think part of that, pushing them especially on the uh, the mental aspect of it and to see how they they get at each other uh during some of these cases are, are, are really interesting and it's it's proved to be beneficial so far we'll uh continue to, to tweak it as we go along and uh maybe cut uh maybe add a little bit more time and I look we're looking at adding some new adding some new questions for the drill instructors to be able to try to facilitate a little bit better but 
So at least for the time being, it sounds like PFCs are a sustain in the Crucible. Yeah, I think so. Ryan, now I'm going to ask you some some questions where you've got absolute authority and, and ability to to change some things about the Marine Corps. And the first one is this, if, if you were coming out for the day and you could change any one thing about, let's say, professional military education for enlisted Marines, what would you change? I think that I would, I would try to get back more specific to jobs, right? And, and, and I know there's a big push right now to like make sure that enlisted Marines are able to get college degrees at the end of their career, which I think is very, very important. Um, but I think we could still do that with being a little bit more specific. And what I mean by that is, you know, when, when I first came in, if I went to ISLIC, I didn't have to go to sergeant's course, mm-hmm. right? Because my focus was being a better infantryman because that is my day-to-day job. I think on a PME aspect of it, if there's a way that we could look at our PMEs and specific, at least types of jobs, right? Whether it's like all ground, go to this type and all air, go to the, so it's a little bit more specific. I think it would be hugely beneficial. One, because it keep us in the fleet more. It keep us more time training with our, our Marines that are going to execute. Uh, and then two, especially if you went like all ground went to somewhere and then like, uh, or logistics went somewhere else, then it's, it's more focused on your day in and day out, which will make you more effective at that day in, day out. And the more you can do that, I think the better. And I think you could still sprinkle in the overall Marine Corps stuff in that because we don't want to lose that either. I just think that we could, we could do that more effectively by focusing on where your piece of the pie is. And then, you know, maybe once you get up to the, to the, the EA level or whatever, you can spread a little bit more, but I think that we need to be good at what we do before we need to be good at what everybody else does. What's one thing you change about how we train Marines in general? All right. So this to me is probably the most far off far-fetched thing that, that, that I can think of. Uh, and I actually did, did a point paper on this there and I walked of like the one way I would change how we do things. And I would use an Anders model, right? So like you've read the book, Anders games uh-huh. and like how they, they run through the process and it, the personnel aspect of it would be the hardest thing to overcome. Mm-hmm. But if we could figure out a way to work the personnel piece, and again, you have to find somebody like big brain bean counter to figure this out, right. To take that, that, that sergeant, right? That Sergeant infantryman after his second deployment, right? And, you know, we go back six-year contracts or something like that, I think would be one of the ways to do it. And then we hand select a few of those and then we send them back down to like some sort of school at at the School of Infantry to facilitate his ability to be able to train and educate infantry Marines. And then when the Marines graduate from boot camp, they would check in and he would be that, that guy, right? That runs them through all the training. And, and you look at like the IMC course, like we talked about earlier, where it's the one to 14 ratio. And if I could take a sergeant out of pick a unit, right? Like just say it's one, one, right? They go over to SOI and they run these 14 privates through this 14 week course. And then when they graduate, he takes those 14 privates back to one, one with him, right? So now we would end up losing this guy out of the fleet for a little while, but he goes back and he gets what would be his advanced training right whether it's the the uh aimc course that we have now along with some t3 and then they run these marines through this pipeline and then bring them to the fleet with them so then you kind of keep that consistency with the the trainer from that 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 
molding piece of their job as infantry Marines all the way up through and then bring them to the fleet. And I think that if you did that, you'd get a little bit more buy-in, probably get a lot more buy-in, right? And, and to have a guy to know that like I'm running this program of instruction at ITB and I have some oversight with some people that see it all the time and I'm going to run them through everything that has to do with this and make sure that they're trained proficient because they're going to be in my platoon or they're going to be in my company right. when I get to the fleet to when I go down range it would help me go ahead and start working in some of our battalion SOPs with them, making sure that we're going ahead and starting to work towards some of our meds and metals uh, as we get out there. And then I'm able to go do that and then go deploy with those same individuals that I ran them through this very strict program of instruction and then did my workup, the rest of my workup before I went out the door. I think that would make us hugely effective. Yeah, I think you're right. you probably have to turn the personnel system on its head to this, but you would be building trust and cohesion from the start, and that's something I don't think you can put a price on. So interesting ideas. Now you talked, I mean, this, this idea sounds like it's specific to the infantry. My next question was, if you could change any one thing about the infantry, um, this could be anything, what would it be? If you, I guess, had a second idea, uh, something that would be infantry specific. Uh, what might you change? I think, I think we would ex extend contracts, keep them around a little bit longer. The two deployments and gone, I think, is, is, is not, not long enough. And then I would also I would keep us from going to do all the other, all the other B billets. And I know this is a hard one because every, every, everybody wants you know, the infantry guys to go out and be part of the drill instructors and be part of, of recruiting and everything else to be able to help that out. And I think that like, if people want to do that, that's fine. Like let them do it. But if we could find a way to keep them from getting histed. So as infantry Marines, you're able to stay in the infantry or you go to SOI to teach at SOI, or you teach at EWTG or, or, or some of these places to where you're staying familiar in the infantry, right? Like we talked about it. I left for, for three years from the infantry, you know, a sergeant for a month and a half got pulled out of the fleet because I got hurt. I got hit on the hearse list back before it was the his, and I was gone for three years. And it was, it was pulling teeth to get called back up, right? Because technology changes so fast and and all that stuff. So it's 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 a lot harder to stay up on the day to day infantry stuff if you spend three years out of it. And when it comes down to it, right? Like if you don't stay up on it, like you have lives in your hands. We're doing an injustice if we don't try to keep them in there. Now, again, if they want to go, I think that's, you know, let, let them do it. You know, we have people that want to go and go the first sergeant route and sergeant major route. Uh, super honorable doing that. But if they want to stay in the infantry, they ought to be able to, be able to stay in the infantry and continue to be professional at the job. Have that option. So you and I have talked at length about ways to get young Marines interested in the art and science of warfare. What techniques have you found particularly effective in, in doing this and kind of creating that spark, lighting that match? I think a lot of it is just, it's like good leadership is, is really what it boils down to. And it's, it's caring about it yourself. You know, I, I had somebody tell me, I was like super young in the Marine Corps and uh, we were doing something that I, I didn't really care about. And there's like, look, like if you want them to be good at it, you have to care about it. Like that's it, right? Like, like as a leader, you have to find it important and show that it is important to you. And if you do that, then the ones around you will do that as well. Mm. And I think that that's like the biggest thing. Like it's that to me, that's on the leadership. It's, you know, it's on the squad leaders, it's on the platoon sergeants, it's on the platoon commanders, but it can't be forced. It's gotta be like, 
if you love it, they're going to love it, right? Like if, if, if you're enthusiastic about it and, and you bring that and, and you can influence it that way, they're going to they're gonna do the same thing. And then it'll help spark that to get them to continue to kind of go, continue to learn. When it comes to teaching and facilitating learning, have you had any aha moments? And if so, what were they? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them. I mean, a lot of aha moments, I, I think if I really run them down, are it, it usually something to do with in the field or in the action of doing something. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of it happens with like failure, I think. A lot of time you'll see an aha moment when, when something fails. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's value in that, right? Like there's value in putting people in situations to where like they, they fail and they step back and like, oh man, right? Like maybe I should have looked at this differently or maybe I should have thought about this differently. And I think that really drives people to try to think more to think deeper about the decisions that they're going to get made. Right. And I, you know, I think about my failures, right? Like we've, we've all failed at some point in time, I think. And and I think that's what really drives me a lot of times is like, I didn't like the way it felt that time. Right. And, and what can I do to prevent that? How do I plan better? What do I think better? What do I need to read more on? Who else do I need to ask to be able to like get the right information to make sure, sure the right thing happens. So a, a similar question, have you had any aha moments as far as, you know, understanding and, and looking to practice, you know, maneuver warfare as described in MCTP1, 1TAC3? I think one of the aha moments, I remember um, first deployment to Afghanistan and I'm, I'm sitting there and we're running a, a scenario and uh, Major Tremblay at the time is like running me through this scenario and he's talking about, you know, the placement of where everything was and like, kind of hitting us on the importance of it and like we're we're doing it and then you know i took it back we just kept doing it with all of our guys and literally within a couple of weeks i got ambushed in almost the exact same situation and our our guys just executed and it was like oh man it's amazing like this stuff works right like it like, like it, it, it works to just rehearse it until you can't get it wrong right like just continue to hit it and hit it and i think that really like sank into me is like the importance of rehearsals the importance of like reps and sets and like thinking through problems because when that happened, it was like, everybody knew what to do, right? Like it's, I didn't even have to say anything. They were just, they were just executing because we'd done it so many times. And I, that's always a good feeling. A question I'd like to ask Marines a lot. Uh, what does maneuver warfare look like in garrison in, in your view? I think it goes back to finding ways to be effective, right? And, and we talk about maneuver warfare and surfaces and gaps and, and what that, and, and it all boils down to like, I think finding opportunity to be successful, finding opportunities to make positive change and positive impacts, whether it's 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 on your squad while you're in the garrison or the way they're acting and 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 what that looks like or uh, the way people are performing back in garrison and then just how you're prepping for the field, right? I think that that's one of the biggest things is like what how can I exploit this time, right? How can I exploit this situation to become more effective unit, to become a more effective squad? And I think that that's really what I try to look at is like, how do, how do we find those times to be able to do that? Brian, what, what do you think about the Marine Corps' Force Design 2030? And specifically, what do you think a, a war with China would look like for the Marine infantrymen? So I think the 2030 is phenomenal. You know, I'd actually spent last week working on the arms room concept and like, like what that, what that's going to look like and what weapon systems are, are going to be where. 
And I, but I think it really sits into like setting us back to the maneuver warfare and focusing on that, right? Like desegregated operations spread out all over the place, right? Being able to operate in these small units, it almost forces us to be more maneuverous, if you will, right? Because you have to be able to trust and have that trust and confidence in that that sergeant squad leader, staff sergeant squad leader, and 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 lieutenant out on an island somewhere by himself to make the right decisions to be able to exploit those opportunities. And then find better ways to be able to support and push resources to get them to be able to be able to facilitate that. I I think it's going to be good. You know, we're we're testing it. We got a couple of different different battalions right now going through uh, a couple of different models of what that looks like uh, to be able to set up and see exactly. I'm I, I'm interested, right? Like it's kind of like we talked about changes. I think change is good, right? That's that's finding ways to change to get better and to get more effective. And I think that that's that's definitely what we're doing. You know. Here's a related question. This comes from Major Matt Tweedy. So the Marine Corps, you know, as part of Course Design 2030 is aiming to make its infantry elite, more mature, uh, essentially soft-like. As a career infantryman and you now gunner, what's your reaction to this? And, you know, what do you think the cultural implications are for the average grunt? I think it's good, right? Like it's, it's, it's one, it's going to attract, I think it should attract more quality right like how do we get quality over quantity you know the numbers have already started dropping down a little bit in the marine corps there's talks of asfab scores and gt scores having to go up for infantrymen and us to be able to operate on that higher level you know you can't can't argue with a smarter force the maturing aspect of it i think it's going to be difficult i think that we really got to look at like how we're going to mature the force you know if we're it's it's very tricky to just say, you know, squad leaders are now going to be staff sergeants and team leaders are going to be sergeants or something like that and expect them to be more senior. I think that the true test for this is how do we get them, how do we get them to stay in, right? And, and I brought up the longer contract things earlier. You know, if we want staff sergeant squad leaders and, and sergeant team leaders, are we just promoting the same guy sooner? Right, because then that's not really maturing the force, or are we finding ways to keep them in the Marine Corps longer? So now I have an eight-year, nine-year staff sergeant running a squad, instead of a you know three-year, four-year sergeant running a squad. Uh, I think that that's going to be one of our biggest our biggest tasks. Uh, and and then again, it, it falls on the leaders, right? Like how are we keeping our Marines in the Marine Corps um, and getting them not to jump ship to to some other branch to, to be soft-like. So I think that that with that statement, right, like us going to be more soft-like, I think it'll, it'll entice more people to stick around to be able to, to, to do that. And then there's other stuff that I think we're really going to have to look at uh, to be able to keep, keep them in longer. Yeah. I, I think you summarized the challenges really well in that maturing the force isn't just saying so it's, it, it is attracting the right people and then holding on to them and finding ways to retain talent uh, and retain the right talent. So final few questions, Ryan, what concerns you most about the future direction of the Marine Corps? I think we kind of hit on it, right? With the, with the concerns is mm -hmm. like, I, I love all the ideas in theory. It's all, it's all phenomenal. Right. But like my concern is how do we, how do we get there? How do we get this, Marine to stay past four years? How do we get them to stay past 10 or 12? How are we keeping them, keeping them in the Marine Corps, keep educating them? Like, what are we giving them to make them to want to do that, right? To continue to be a part of this body of the Marine Corps. That's, that's our biggest challenge, I think. 
mm-hmm. especially in the whole force design. You know, if we if if we look at it conceptually, right? Like it's, I, I don't think you'll find many people that are like against it or super against it. There's always rooms for tweaks to make it a little bit, you know, how can we make it a little bit better? You know, that's what we spend most of this week on, right? Like how can we, you know, brief the groundboard coming up on on different ideas to be able to evolve and 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 make this to make us more effective. But I think my my biggest concern is keeping the right people in. Mm-hmm. What excites you most about the future direction of the Marine Corps? I like how we're really starting to focus on the training aspect more. Like the the IMC course that they came up with that they've been running and like the way we're educating these these young Marines as they're coming in and they're and the and the big push to like really professionalize the force mm. is is it's is a huge huge push right now probably the hugest i've seen since i've been in, in in 17 years and it doesn't just sound like it's somebody's just saying it right like like we're doing stuff about it right. so to me that's it's just it's super exciting it's it's an exciting time to be you know to be an infantryman in the marine corps i was talking to uh, my company gunny the other day also one of my students that i sold and mm. worked and we ended up pulling him over to aitb and uh, we were running down all the stuff they're hitting at SOI and, and, and what all that looks like and not just what they're doing with the students, but what they're doing with the instructors running them through those courses and how that stuff's bleeding over down to the evaluation forms we're trying to use at Paris Island to how we're carrying that stuff over to the fleet. So, and he was like, man, can I go to SOI right now? Like, what can I do to change? You know, it's just, it's, 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 it's very exciting to be a part of that to where we're like, we're making we're making good change quick and it's not like somebody's just saying something and we're just waiting. It's, it's, it's happening, right? Like it's get on board because we're, we're changing and getting better. So I like that aspect though. Yeah, I think you're right. These are exciting times in the Marine Corps. So Ryan, this has been a really fun conversation, learned a ton. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, we'd been trying to do this for a while. Really glad we did. My final question for you, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Enjoy it, right? And, and, and enjoy enjoy the education, right? Enjoy being in the Marine Corps. You know, I, I think a lot of your uh, your listeners are Marines, and like I think I think my big parting shot is like enjoy coming to work, and the Marines around you will be enjoyed coming to work, right? And then and then find ways to make positive impacts every day, and then always challenge yourself. And that's to me is. Is, is what makes this gun club one of the best things surrounding yourself with people that that want to be better want people around them to be better ryan thanks so much really appreciate your time and uh you sharing your experiences and insights appreciate it